All right. Bookschmus. Sovereign individual to close off the year. We're just pumping out this, this episode. <laughs> the, which which number is it? Which like is It's it just eight, eight or nine? Ah, we didn't manage to ten, did yes, we? Yes, yes. Oh, that's that's kind of disappointing. Well, let's make this one great, right? Let's go. Uh, so the self, the sovereign individual. But you wrote down self-sovereign individual. Yeah, I know. I don't know why I did that. Like I felt the book was. Yeah. What, what's that? You always say that. Yeah, because you always say like that, right? Self-sovereign identity. Yeah, you always like, said that. That's like why. Thing, yeah. yeah, that's why I read it down. That, that I, I always, and I was always thinking, what does self-sovereign mean? Actually, <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> But oh no, of course, it's called sovereign individual, which makes a lot more sense actually. All right. Um, and the subtitle is mastering the transition to the information age. And it's written by James Dale Davidson. And some kind of. <laughs> Journalist, economist, kind of guy, and Lord William Rees Mogg. Uh, both of them are journalists, I thought. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. But they also used to have like this newsletter, like back in the 90s, or like a, like a, a magazine that has something yeah, to do yeah, with investing. Kind of, I think they're investing. Yeah, investors as yeah, well. Yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. they consult just, people in investment or I something. I just looked up the James Dale Davidson on, on Wikipedia and it. Wikipedia reader doesn't like him. It says like that he's a conspiracy theorist and stuff. Is he still alive? Like they're going to be quite the, old, right? The second, like one 70 is, plus. second one is dead, but the Lord William Rees Mark is dead. Mm -hmm. But Dale Davidson is like 75 and still still going strong. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> so this book was written in 1997. Ah, I was actually, I was wondering when it, when it was written today, because I feel like this makes it especially interesting for us to read it. And to kind of review it. Yeah. Because we've got the benefit, like we have the total benefit of hindsight with this one. Yep. Yep. It makes a lot of predictions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it's even like, it's, it's a really, really interesting book to read. And I think it's, it ages well. <clears throat> I think it's more interesting to read it now, maybe than it was in 1997. Yeah, maybe. Because it turned... Well, I think we'll, we'll see how well, many of the Well, that's one of the, the things, things that Peter Thiel, who wrote the preface to this book in 2020, mm -hmm. he's, he said like that because of Corona, um, like yeah, the, exactly. the 21st century is like 20 years late. Yeah. Like it's arriving just now. So we don't know. Like, yeah, I was, I think the whole time reading this book, you were like, okay, where, because all the predictions basically are about like the 21st century. And you, you're constantly wondering, okay, where, where are we? Because we are already like a quarter almost of the 21st century is already over, right? Mm -hmm. And not like, I don't know how much, how many of their predictions really have come to reality to date. All right. Yeah, let's well, try to figure it out. Yeah. I just want to read this one sentence from the preface. But just one feel. though. All right. The future may lie somewhere between these two extreme poles. Which extreme poles? Um, AI being communist and crypto being libertarian. This is mm -hmm. what Peter Thiel always says. Uh, the actions we take today will determine the overall outcome. Reading the sovereign individual in 2020 is a way to think carefully about the future that your own actions will help to create. It is an opportunity not to be wasted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you agree? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, sounds, makes sense. 
Um, okay, well, let's dig into it, right? Yeah, so, let's go through all the, all the chapters. <laughs> it's 11 chapters, which is not that many, right? But it's still like a, it's still a long, very long book. I think it's 400, uh, 11, what did I say? Two? You said 11. 11 chapters. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's like 400 pages, but actually I think it's like the, the core message is, becomes very, very clear and pretty simple, but still let's go just like, let's just make our way through the chapters, right? All right. So... Chapter one, I think this just gives an overview and um, kind of postulates that the transition of the year 2000 will be, like at, from their point of view will be, but like was, the, this was where we reached the fourth stage of human society or human development. Mm -hmm. And the first one can be considered the hunter-gatherer society. Mm-hmm. Then the agricultural society, the industrial society, and now we arrive at the information age. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, this is like the fourth and like a very special stage. So it's not like ah, it's another, it's another transition. It's like it's groundbreaking and breathtaking, and it's not like the others. Not like well, the others, where yeah. it's like a hunter gatherer <laughs> ah, to whatever yeah. agricultural stage. It's like almost nothing. No, no, but they say that. <laughs> they say that. Like they postulate that it's going to be huge. All right. Well, and um, yeah. So I feel like maybe I think this is something to to like like point out right now because I feel like it's very essential to the whole book and it's it's a recurring theme. All right. What well. the violence. The, the importance of, of violence and who controls violence and who gets to exercise violence um, as like the, the most decisive factor for the way society is molded, I guess, or the way mm -hmm. society works. And um, they always say that, and I think this sentence will be like in the book, like 20 times or 30, that as the returns to violence are diminishing, That's what, what's going to happen in the, in, during the information age. Mm -hmm. And this will be, and this will kind of be a, a game changer for the, the importance of the nation state. Mm -hmm. This will be the death of the nation, nation state, actually, eventually. Like diminishing like, returns to violence. Yep. Yeah. Because he says that the, like the, the nation state currently like controls, controls the violence. You know, if you don't pay your taxes, the, the tax collector is gonna gonna come and put you into prison. And people always say, "Oh, we don't like violence," but well, it's kind of reasonable. Like you need some violence, like the tax guy, right? Like the state dishes out violence constantly. So um, yeah, but but this... I feel it's also like the protection from violence. Yeah. So the state kind of the state exercises violence, but mm -hmm. it also provides kind of protection from violence from outside, basically. Yeah, yeah, other states as well. Yeah. You know. So it's kind of a give and take. Yeah. But this is, a, this is about to change. Because of the advent of the... <coughs> and I, I love that they say this, like, I love they, that they use this term because we don't use it at all, the cyberspace. Yeah, cyberspace. Like, what happens to the cyberspace? Nobody says cyberspace It just didn't stick. <laughs> it's not really... But he also says, like, on page 30, he says metaverse. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, really? Ah. Metaverse. Yeah. The alternative cyberspace world imagined by a science fiction writer novelist Neil Stevenson. Stevenson's metaverse is a dense virtual community with its own laws. We believe it is in inevitable 
that as the cyber economy becomes richer, its participants will seek and obtain exemption from the anachronistic laws of nation states. Yeah, but so this metaverse term has, has really had a big comeback with... Yeah, as opposed to the cyberspace, which is dead, unfortunately. I think. Yeah, yeah, with Meta, the company Meta and yeah. Facebook. But so, yeah, so the first chapter, I think, just kind of makes essential points that we're actually going to... That, that society is going to change massively and this is going to cause the end of nation states as we know it. Mm -hmm. And along the way, during this transition, we're going to face new challenges um for example like the neo luddites mm -hmm. you know the the like kind of like luddites who i think they destroyed the machines right during yeah, the yeah. industrial revolution so yeah. the neo luddites kind of these these are going to be the losers of the information age the left behinds the left behinds the losers um so we're going to be facing violence from them because they're going to have to like they're going to try to defend the nation state because of the, the welfare state and um But we're going to, like, there's going to be new sovereignty through markets. And the citizens, I think this is a very interesting point. Like, the citizens, the citizens are going to become, like, more like customers. And the state is going to have to try to cater to his customers. Yep. This is something they find really essential. So, because you, you pay the taxes, so you're more of a, you're a paying customer. And it's going to be like a lot more competition between the nation states. Yeah, with the whole cyber economy and making money online, you'll have more leverage as an individual. You can more easily change your tax residency or something or where you live. Yeah. So the state doesn't have um, as much of a strong grip grip on you. And you can choose if you want to like stay based in your state or if you just leave. Yeah. Whereas before you were kind of shackled to the state you were born in much more. Yeah. And so a couple of things they say. For the first time, those who can educate and motivate themselves will be almost entirely free to invent their own work and realize the full benefits of their own productivity. In an environment where the greatest source of wealth would be the ideas okay. you have in your head rather than physical capital alone, anyone who thinks clearly will potentially be rich. It's pretty nice. It's very motivating. Yeah. So you can be like this sovereign individual. Yeah. Who's like his own little state, state. like a mini state. Yeah. He's like so cool. And, and like he, he's on the same level, like hierarchically as a, as a state. Like they, they mm -hmm. operate on the same level. Governments will have little choice, but to treat populations and territories, they serve more like customers. Yeah, we said that. And less in the way that organized criminals treat the victims of a shakedown racket. So these guys are pretty, like, maybe libertarian. They really don't like the Yeah, they the really state. hate the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, well, maybe one, one just an interesting story they told also, I think, in the first chapter was that... Um, so every 500 years, like... Society, or roughly every 500 years, society dies and is reborn. And so 500 BC, like the Greek democracy essentially came into place. <coughs> Then around the year zero, of, of course, the birth of Christ. And also the Roman Empire was in its <laughs> highest pitch of greatness. Yeah. And then 500 after Christ, you know, the Roman uh, Empire collapsed and thus started the Dark Ages. A thousand 
after Christ, the kind of feudal revolution took place, which is also a big part of this. Mm-hmm. And um, 1500, the gunpowder revolution and the Renaissance started. <laughs> so they're also arguing that as the year 2000 is approaching, we're going to have to, like, there's going to be another big thing happening because it's a, you know, it's a rule. Because it happens every 500 years, yes. three times. <laughs> Four times. <laughs> All right. Actually. But it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, it's quite, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, a rough it's intriguing to see a pattern there. Maybe it's, it's just a coincidence, but it looks like there's a pattern there. Um, okay. So, um, so let's move on to the next chapter then. Mm-hmm. So, chapter two: the mega political transformations <laughs> in a historic perspective. <laughs> I love the word, the word "mega political." Also, they use that a lot. It's like mega politics. That's something like like I don't even know what that exactly is. I mean, it kind of says what it is, but still, like yeah, it's about these really big. Trends like the meta changes, like the the yeah. So um, yeah, that was also quite a quite an interesting chapter, like historically speaking. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in history, that was that was one. So I think it's just um, and actually I thought this particular bit's very interesting. So they list kind of the facts, um, like facts about mega political t- transitions and kind of the conditions under which these um, these take place, and so. Um, some of, and some of them can actually be found in today's society as well, I think. So, for example, incomes are falling. Um, I think that's something that's maybe going to happen. Okay, so you're saying incomes are falling right now? Well, I think they might be pretty soon if there's a recession coming. Okay. Um, well, all of these transformations are followed by violence and chaos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're never popular. <laughs> so nobody never, like, they, they're never liked and never popular. And they're usually accompanied by corruption and a moral decay. Mm-hmm. And I think this can be seen, at least like in Austria, it feels like there's lots of corruption and sort of a moral decay. Mm-hmm. And I think that was also like what, what, what kind of what happened before World War One, right? So this was also, especially I think in, in Central Europe, a society, you know, the, the Father Sieke, the end of the century kind of society that felt like it was it was falling like that felt like the end was near that yep. was very decadent decadence instability no. low morals something yeah. like this um but as opposed to like in former days technology speeds up history and so like a, a process that used to take maybe 100 years or longer can now be it's now reduced to a single lifespan. So within a single lifespan, you might be um, experiencing this like huge transformation. All right. Which I think is what we're seeing now, right? I mean, just in our lifespan, like in like thirty years, how much has changed? Yeah, especially with the AI stuff. Like especially this year, like you have the Dali, the the one that can make uh, pictures out of your words, and then the Chat GPT thing. Uh, which seem like pretty big breakthroughs. Yeah, yeah. Um, the crypto stuff. Yeah, I think t- especially th- this year, like you feel like technology has really <coughs> picked up the pace, right? Yeah. But maybe like it's just it. this area, I don't know. In other areas, not so much, right? Like I feel like energy, like... 
Yeah, that's not really physics feel, kind of stagnating, yeah, except yeah. for Elon Musk and the SpaceX stuff. Well, it seems like they well, move forward. Anyway, I don't have that much on this chapter. Really, you don't? No. Oh well, there's, actually, I've got some. I've <laughs> got a bunch of stuff on this chapter. Yeah, because <laughs> I really, I really liked it. Like, there's other factors, for example, for meta- mega political transformation that matter, but not not as much as like maybe some not as much as they used to. For example, um, topography. Topography. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of the reasons apparently why Greece became very prosperous, like before, like two thousand years before Christ or something, or mm-hmm. thousand years before Christ, because why? everything was pretty close to the coastline. Like all ah, the yeah. yeah, the farming was pretty close to the coastline, and climate. Mm-hmm. That's has always led to transformations, and because especially when temperatures dropped. Yeah. Yeah, he also says like, um, like about global wor- warming. He says concerns he says that, yeah. cannot be dismissed out of hand. Yet, taking a longer perspective, the more likely risk appears to be a shift to a colder, not a warmer climate. Yeah, that's what uh, Björn Lomborg always says, right? That it's yeah, yeah, and also the Epstein guy from the Fossil Future book. Yeah, which Peter Thiel also likes. And that was one very interesting point. Um, I don't know how valid that is but they mention it that um also the, the interaction with microbes right so the human microbes interaction microbes has also sh- shaped society and shaped kind of the mm-hmm. path of history in the sense that um the higher mortality due to pandemics and famine and stuff like that um that this kind of lowered the risk to die in war so or this made people less reluctant to die in war because families fi- families got smaller and so, like, the individual maybe in the family got more valuable. So he, Yeah, but that makes him more reluctant to die. Anymore. Yeah, more reluctant. Exactly. All yeah. Right. Yeah. So when the family family size shrunk over time, that made kind of, like, made wars in a way less probable or people were, yeah, even more reluctant to die. So people put, like, more value. On the individual, yeah, on the on individual life. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess makes sense. But, I mean, I guess the, the biggest wars took place in the 20th century and that was before oh that was after like so there was still like but they didn't have a chance i guess so i don't know but it was just an interesting idea i thought and um i and also technology obviously plays a role for example like um especially when it comes to weapons so like the um the equality of, of weapons very much determines the way society where society goes mm-hmm. especially whether defense or offense are stronger yeah and if like everybody has access to these weapons and if they're easy to use mm-hmm. or, and, and cheap also. Yeah. Like for example, like with, well, for example, in the, during the, like the dark ages, the knight with his armor and his horse was much more powerful than the peasant. So he says like offense is super strong. Uh, yes. Yes. Like you can beat the peasant. Like one, one knight, he says like tank can beat like 30 peasants yeah. with his armor, but then you have to build like castles and stuff to battle other knights which seems like a big investment yeah and then there's all ghosts there's all but then with the advent of kind of gunpowder and stuff like that and especially like you know hand arms like hand yeah. fire, and fire, arms, fire arms, arms yeah, yeah. That's when mass war became possible. Yeah, because now like every idiot with a gun can be like super powerful and can choose, become a soldier and, and can, shoot down a knight. Yeah, and, and the knight becomes yeah, useless. and can die for their country. And, and the horse. this makes it very interesting for the nation state to keep. Yeah, the, to have the, lots of citizens it can project yeah. power outwardly way better. Mm-hmm. And also like this whole offense defense thing. This is also like like cypherpunk ideology. 
like in the information age, there's the cypherpunk movement. What's that? Well, they they say like the the whole crypto libertarian movement that they say like because of um, because of um, cryptography, like the individual defense is way stronger than than offense. Like if you encrypt something, like even like an, a state level actor, like a nation state, cannot decrypt it. Mm-hmm. So that makes it so. Um, yeah, the individual becomes way way stronger, which is like the ideology of the cy- cypherpunk crypto movement, kind of. Yeah. And um, yeah. So now this is why, why, like, which also favors smaller government, right? Like, because defense, if defense is stronger, then it's always like it doesn't favor big governments. Big governments prevail when offense is stronger. Uh, yeah. So I think this is along your kind of along the lines of what you. Just but said. I feel like maybe in the future they don't talk about this in this book. But like nowadays with like drone warfare, except like the whole Russian, Russian, yeah, Ukraine I think war. I, I thought about this very often while reading a book that actually like the biggest war that we've uh, come to experience turned out to be pretty much, I think. Like a traditional yeah. war. Yeah. Which is, I, I think, kind of something else from what they predicted. Because they predicted that everything, basically everything in the future was going to be like cyber warfare. So, but really that's not at all what's happening in in ukraine right not even i mean you could you could expect that the russians would at least kind of hack the like hack the power plants of the ukraine and yeah maybe they, they do kind of like, but it doesn't seem that yeah, it's not working it's not working properly talks about it, huh? no i don't think it's working properly because then they wouldn't have to like you know waste all the munition ammunition mm. so i don't think it's working mm. so maybe the russians are just bad hackers or it's just not uh, not as easy or it's just, or maybe the the Ukraine. It's yeah, and it's also very much about humans. Like yeah, yeah. I, 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 it's still a traditional. I think it's still a traditional war, like yeah. a traditional twentieth century war, like the First World War was the second one. But in the future, I think you're gonna have like Terminators, where like human soldiers can't do anything, and then the side with better Terminators wins. Well, or maybe not. Maybe it's not going the way that they thought it was gonna go. Maybe the prediction was wrong. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe it's, it's wrong, and the human will be. But it seems unlikely. It makes no sense. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's unlikely, especially like with falling birth rates and stuff. Nobody is gonna go want to go to war. And he also, they they also say it at some point in this in this book. Uh, I have marked it down somewhere. Where like in the future, it will seem silly for people to go like to war for the nation state. But that's what they're doing. Like. But it's Maybe we're be- not there yet. We're not in the information age, or it's not going to pan out as predicted. Mm-hmm. Because everybody, it's silly, yes, but it's still happening, right? At a large scale. So Russia has constri- conscripted, is that the other word? 300,000 more Russian soldiers. Ha- and they happily, or probably not happily, but they found the people. Yeah, but the people, like, it's hard for them to leave and they have their family there, I think. Especially the Russian soldiers, like, I feel like they're not really motivated. And but the, the Ukraine, Ukrainian And are. even the Ukrainian ones, like, there was this thing in, um, like, the, where, where the women could all, like, leave the country and the men were, like, forbidden from doing so. And the fact that, that they have to enforce it to, to have, like, the fact that they even need this law shows to me that people are maybe not that motivated to... But I don't think they were motivated during World War II to fight for their country. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You always have to conscript the people. You kind of have to force them to participate in the in the thing. Yeah, but then maybe it's just not changing the way we that they predicted it. Because I think their prediction panned out right. Like I don't think it did because I don't think it's like it, it's different from World War II. 
I don't see an information age in the Ukraine-Russian war. Okay, I think if, if we would look at, at some statistics, there are these statistics about willingness to go to war for your country. These things are probably going down. Well, yeah, maybe. Yeah. But do you think that's because of the advent of the information age? No, I think it's just the longer the peace periods are. Okay, there may be other. The reasons. more, yeah. Well, anyway. And also, there are some some nations that are more where nationalism is more common, and others where it's less less of a thing. Yeah, yeah, but in general, it's going down. Nationalism, you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they yeah they also say that, but I'm not so sure about that actually. All right. Well, um, do you want to move on to chapter three? Yeah, moving on next okay. chapter. East of Eden, sophistication of violence. Yeah, the agricultural revolution and the sophistication of violence. Oh, that was really interesting, actually. I loved this chapter because I felt like it was kind of the history of violence. Mm -hmm. And I never thought about this before. Why, how violence, when violence first came into place. Um, and so the way it's described here, is, it makes lots of sense. So... Um, Get to the point. <laughs> so actually, only when people became sedentary, is that the word? Yeah. Yeah, that's when... They became violent because like the hunter-gatherer groups were kind of just roaming huge areas. So, mm -hmm. and they actually was really huge areas because they, they were like, they were kind of had the same habitat as the bears they were, they were hunting. And so whenever, apparently whenever a group kind of encountered another group's area, they would usually just leave because there was no There's way. There's no point. You, they yeah. don't, they don't have any treasures. Yeah, they did. Yeah. They're like living hand to mouth. Exactly, yeah. So there's no reason and to And they were fight. not particularly bound to that where, to their locale either. So they did have felt they, it was easy for them to leave. Like yeah. they didn't really feel bound to... Yeah, the cost was yeah. low and the... And there was nothing to gain. Nothing to gain, except women, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> hmm. maybe. Um, but then obviously, like when agricultural revolution came along, then it, that's when... That's first when started. there was yeah. an incentive for conflict. Yeah. yeah. And also because people couldn't just leave. Because if you're growing your crops, that's going to take you months. And then you, ca you can't leave. Or yeah. you're very unwilling to leave your yep. the, the harvest behind or not the, just the, the growing crops behind. Um, and also this is like the, um, the advent of the agricultural revolution is also what, um, what like, like gave rise to accounting and taxation. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. in the seeing like a state book and last names, for example. Oh, yeah. Example were a thing that like is very much in the interest of the state. Um, but it, we're not the state there yet. All right. Like it's not the state. But they used to live like in these kind of closed villages, apparently, mm -hmm. which were, yeah, so, so everybody heavily depended on, on their neighbors. But this also, this was also beneficial because that way they could all kind of bear the, the, the kind of the, the risk was, divided between everybody if there was a famine then but i think this was already kind of this feudal system maybe so what are you what are you even saying like, <laughs> do you have you read the book like do you know what i'm talking about or no i don't know what you're, you, do, what you, you have mean? nothing on on the chapter east of Eden. <laughs> yeah except that the social function of a religion <laughs> is independent of its truth or falsity <laughs> which i very much like And Robin Hanson also says this, that like religion is more about like group, in-group loyalty. And the more ridiculous it is, the better. Because like you have more mm -hmm. 
like it, it, it shows your members to be more loyal if they believe something completely um, ridiculous. Hmm. And then these rituals are kind of nice and people like the rituals. Oh, but talking about rituals, um, that was also a very interesting point, I think, in this chapter. Um, <laughs> the role of church, um, the role the kind of the church had during the Dark Ages. Yeah, the church was like really part of the state. or um, It was actually kind of even like a proxy for, or it, like it replaced the state where there was yeah. no state. Yeah. And it was also really useful because yeah. it was kind of, it. I think for once it kind of helped because um, there was lots of, you know, plundering from from kind of roaming groups of knights or something mm -hmm. and they kind of struck deals with them sometimes apparently and gave them kind of nobility mm -hmm. so this is where nobility first came into being mm -hmm. and then they also they promoted productivity even oh. um because they had so many so sometimes people just people died and just gave their land to the church so the church became a big landowner yeah all over europe basically and so sometimes they could just um kind of they could just send some seeds to like more productive seeds to other areas or something. So they, they gave this example of monks in Northern Europe who kind of bred more, bred hardier sorts of grapes to produce yeah, the, yeah. the wine, you know, for the, for the mass. So, so it's good if you have like a class of people who don't have to spend all their yeah, time farming. So you have like people who are like uh, the scientists and like the bureaucrats. Yeah, I guess they kind of fostered know-how in a way. And because mm. they were sort of connected all over Europe, it was easy for them to, they could kind of, knowledge could spread in a way. And of course they were, they, they had this, uh, you know, this inscriptoria, the, you know, the, these kind of writing mm -hmm. places in the monasteries where they, yeah, were just copying books. And actually that was the only source of literacy during yeah. the dark ages yeah yeah that's, so that's really interesting how the ch church had like a completely different role or like was super important it was really important yes exactly um but then it yeah it fell it became decadent and everything and also fell and that was i guess around the 1500 when um, martin luther came and and the you know the reformation happened mm -hmm. yeah so it all went kind of corrupt yeah yeah it like <laughs> It decayed morally as well. He gives like tons of examples. Yeah, and, yeah. And just like the church leaders were so considered corrupt and were hated by the people because they didn't they took so follow their money. own rules. They yeah. didn't follow the rules and like the tax rate was like ridiculously high. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was, it became very bureaucratic, which it hadn't been at first. Yeah. And, um, they also had like they, they had no money anymore. So they kind of had deficit spending as well. And, just demanded more and more people from the from the more and more money from the people for like ridiculous reasons and they like made them do all of these rituals mm. but at first it was really important like the role of the church was actually very important for the development of yeah kind of okay some sort of cultivation during these dark ages um yeah also like building infrastructure like church the church did that nobody else would they kind of built streets and stuff and cathedrals That was a huge economic factor, like building these huge churches and cathedrals, because it helped. I think it helped, like, sort of kind of diversify the markets or make the market broader, because you needed all sorts of different people for this, like, mm -hmm. you know. Not just farmers, but yeah. people who can do other stuff. Exactly, like a cobbler or something. Mm -hmm. So that was really important, uh, important for the economic development as well, the, the role of the church, basically. Yeah. Um, okay. 
So, do you want to move on to chapter yeah. four? Chapter four, the last days of politics, parallels between the senile decline of the Holy Mother Church and the nanny state. The nanny state. You like that, the nanny state. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think that was... Um, I think that was the chapter where they kind of explained the whole feudal, talked about, a lot about the feudal revolution, um, which was, I, I think that was basically like the medieval system of things, right? So there was one feudal, like a lord, who basically owned all the land and provided protection for the peasants. And they had to give him, they had to kind of, they had to give him the share of crop and also, I guess, follow him in war, maybe. Mm -hmm. Was that how this worked? Yep. And there were the yeoman farmers... And they who who didn't have to. Um, so the yeoman farmer was like the farmer. The free just, farmer. Yeah, who just goes somewhere and. I think so. Or they had a special. Stuff. Maybe I guess they still had to pay something to uh, some sort of landlord. I guess. Um, but that's actually quite an interesting family story. So, like my ancestors from the Czech Republic, they were yeoman farmers. During like in the 16th century or something. Yeah, mine probably were as well. <laughs> no, actually, and then then it's like, it's a very nice story because that like if in this sort of area, the Bohemian Forest, the the sign of the yeoman farmers was that they didn't have to to, to cut their hair. And in in German, like in in Austrian German, there's a word for like if you say that's a prole, the word is actually means you ha you have very short hair. Because say which word? Say the word. I don't think you know it. It's kshiat. Ah, okay. Have yeah. you heard that? Well, Die Gscherden. Scheren yeah, means, means like to cut... Cut the wool of uh, for sheep. Yeah, to shear, actually. I think yeah, it's, shear, yeah. yeah. The sheared ones were the ones that the kind of the proles, because yeah. they were not... They didn't own themselves, they but they were owned by the landlord. They had to and, cut their hair, yeah, like yeah. the people in the military. And the yeah. others didn't have to. So my ancestors didn't have to, because they nice. were kind of yeoman farmers. But this is like the downfall of the yeoman farmer. Like he had to... He had to submit to some kind of feudal lord in the end. Yeah, but like some had a special kind of, I think, relationship. But but overall, apparently, yes, during the feudal revolution, the the, the standard of living for all the farmers and the, like the pests for everybody fell. So it was not a good time for them. Yeah, but they still kind of survived. Like they, it was all. It's all very much about risk and insurance yeah like, the, the farmer the farmer insurance kind of thing yeah, yeah exactly I, like you saw about that as well you you can't you don't want to have that much food it's 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 way more important to not starve than to become really rich yeah and also and that helped like having this kind of landlord person the feudal lord yeah. helped you to survive because even if there was a famine then it was also in the interest of the feudal lord that your farmers who like kind of have your like who who do your fields don't die so the feudal lord had to kind of i think feed them eventually like yes. worst comes to worst he so had to feed like, them yeah like yeah. an insurance policy kind of yeah almost yeah so they could they kept <clears throat> less for themselves because they had to give some to the feudal lord but like in times of famine they were more likely to survive than if they had been on their own but basically i think it was imp impossible to be on your own completely because mm -hmm. then you want we're going to be like a victim of the Nights of the yeah, and all sorts of gang mobster people all the time. Yeah, yeah. So that was basically impossible, I guess. Here they say in the book like knights are like hell's angels on horseback, like the motorcycle gang. Yeah, so they Just were like not riding around like <laughs> and kind of pillaging, yeah. being plundering, and, and yeah. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that and, and this whole feudal system basically kind of relied on oaths, like on this chivalry, so like a code of manners and. And um, they had all sorts of um, like this 
this like this knights of the knights of Templar or something. They all had uh, sorts of oaths and kind of oaths. Um, <laughs> that was what kept them together. And they say that eventually, like the citizenship kind of evolved from chivalry um, because then, like I think, as the returns to violence got higher, it made more sense for like you know the government ha has to become bigger. And so eventually the nation state kind of developed out of smaller sovereignties or something because it's because that's what they said before, right? So if the returns to violence are higher, then it makes more sense for a big government because they can kind of mount more resources. Yeah, so if you pull your money... Yeah. So usually with these knights, like the, the bigger army just wins. Yeah. So you need to pull your resources, pull your knights all together become a big thing and then you can destroy the others. And then, but yeah, and this was kind of the transition, slow transition from kind of to citizenship in a way. Yeah. Or like Because the rules the, of the game kind of change. Yeah. You have a bigger state and then you have a bigger, you have like citizen subjects of the state. Yeah. And also the advent of gunpowder. And of gunpowder, even, yeah. Even, yeah, even accelerated this process. Yep. Um, but yeah, eventually the, I think the eclipse of the feudalism and, um, and the church, which was, as we said, very important in this whole thing, um, came because they were, yeah, they all got kind of decadent and um, bureaucracy overtook as usual. And um, the leaders were hated and everything. And they say, well, these are kind of, they see these parallels to today's nation states in, mm -hmm. in these respects. Where it gets way too big. Yeah, exactly. And it's super inefficient and waste Yeah, and the money. leaders are whack. Uh, yeah, whack leaders. And um... <coughs> in this chapter, they also say, from the vantage point of the information society, the spectacle of soldiers in the modern period traveling halfway around the globe to entertain death out of loyalty to the nation state will come to be seen as grotesque and silly. Yeah, but as we said, we're not there yet. Yeah, yeah. You, and I'm not you, sure if we'll never be, if we'll ever truly like as long as the nation like... state exists, we'll never get there. But I just like this perspective of because usually you think of these soldiers kind of as heroes, like it's heroic. But but they say like people in the future will be like, wow, that's so dumb. Why why you do this? So yeah, well, I hope we'll ever get to that point because I don't because it is kind of retarded. It, yeah, it is, but it's tragic also, and it could. I think this whole Ukraine-Russian war has shown us that it can happen any time. Apparently, still, even though it's grotesque and silly, it can become reality. Mm -hmm. Anytime. Yeah. But and still, you need to force the soldiers. Like, they don't really do it voluntarily that much, you know? Yeah, but it's still possible. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So. All right. You maybe... have anything else on this chapter? Um, no, I don't think. No, not really. So Just basically. That this all led also kind of um, led to this, the, the, Ref the Reformation. Okay, because the yeah. old church has become so bad and so Decadent and very. And also the rituals. We're not that, like, you know, and I think this is also what Martin Luther really hated, for example, that people had to buy, kind of had to, had to buy sort of like a letter. Yeah, what's to, it called? In... Yeah, I don't know what the, yeah. the English, but you know what I mean. Like, they had to have to buy a letter so their dead relatives or whatever in hell kind of can go to heaven 10 years earlier or something. Yeah, yeah. All th these sorts of things, just like absurd. A racket, like, con, like yeah. a con, like a cheap. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like a cheap... Uh... It wasn't about scam. piety anymore or about faith, faith, but rather like a very, um, yeah, kind of making money and, and, and yeah. All right. So the church the goes downhill. Then the feudal lords also 
go downhill and we've got the 15 we've got 1500 and we have the yeah. a new age and martin luther is like it's like a new church like from the ground up which really which very much reminds me of the network state book which we maybe review in this podcast as well where um where he's well, well the balaji says that it's really important to just be able to start anew with stuff like a lot of the times it's way harder to change the old thing Like like taking a new piece of paper, you don't you don't remove the old, your old writings. You just take a new piece of paper, and that's maybe also like with the church. Maybe sometimes you need to be like Martin Luther, just start a new church instead of trying to change the old. Mm. Especially also with maybe nation states. Yeah, <laughs> but actually, I thought about the network state at some point. I hope I, I put it out somewhere. Um, okay, so chapter five. The life and death of the nation-state, democracy and nationalism as resource strategies in the age of violence. Yeah, I think this was actually like it was such a such a long and interesting chapter, but it basically can be summed up in one sentence, right? So that like in a democracy, like we need like the industrial states needed democracy to kind of make to gather as many resources as possible. Why do you need democracy for? Um, I think because. This kind of it kind of just or it's easier because it kind of justifies or you kind of pretend that this is the will of the people anyways. Mm -hmm. I think it was I didn't think that was that was too clear, but they say that a lot that the that democracy is you need to like if you want to like the, the, the democratic governments manage to gather the most resources, mm -hmm. and this is why the U.S. for example won the Cold War because they could they could kind of gather the most resources from their people and then put it all into the military. And that's what eventually what made them succeed. Well, but then I, I thought that in a communist the war, also... They won the war because of markets. Because Yeah, of, but that's because, like, interestingly, democracy goes very well with free market economy. Does it? Well, better than communism. Well, I don't know. What about, like, the Chinese Yeah, I thought about Chinese, uh, like, China as well. Um, but I think... And yeah, I think this is quite a, yeah, this is quite, um, I don't, yeah, they, they never mentioned China because I think China didn't used to be this big of a player, apparently, in the yeah, 90s. They, they kind of missed, China, like, the yeah. rise of China is, like, one of the big developments in the last yeah. and they don't, 20 years, and they don't really... Not really, not really. China is now the, ne the next, the new superpower. The next big thing, yeah. Yeah, the big thing, yeah. And China is interesting in that respect because it's true, it's not, a, it's definitely not a democracy. But yeah, but I think it's, I think maybe China got, is so special because they, they found a way to kind of have free market economy, but still oppress their people. And usually you have to buy this kind of free market with democracy. I don't democracy. know if they oppress the people that much. But they do, yeah. definitely. I mean, they locked them down for two years. Yeah, that's true. The lockdown is pretty, pretty retarded. Yeah, definitely. The lockdown is dumb. Yeah. And they blocked the internet. So you have to get the VPN and stuff. Definitely. Yeah. So in this chapter, they say during the industrial age prior to 1989, democracy emerged as the most militarily effective form of government precisely because democracy made it difficult or impossible to impose effective limits on the commandeering of resources by the state. Because it's the will of the people or why? I, I never really got... Do you, do, you, do you think that's... Do you see... Is that the reason why? Because, I mean, they say that a lot. So it was hard for the, the rich people... They basically couldn't couldn't step on the brakes when it came to spending, mm -hmm. but that was because they said, "Oh, we are we abide by the will of the people." Or why? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah, it seems like a good justification. 
like you know we're democratic like even the losers in society i I just read this recently about like democracy being a nice justification for the losers of society so they don't don't get too angry yeah because you can always say well that's we're democracy yeah you have a vote just like everyone else and um yeah i guess so it's got to be something like this so basically government could do what they wanted because they were an elected government Mm -hmm. maybe that's the point of this yeah. And I guess in a, in a democracy, you can also kind of tax people more or as much as you like, basically, because you are the people, right? You are abiding by the will of the people. Do you remember, mm. like, from the Machiavellians, the Bonapartism? Yeah, where you can I say, am the I people. Am the state, yeah. I do what the people like because I, I am the people. So It feels like a good argument. Maybe that's the, yeah. I guess this might be the reason why. Because I also thought that this was not that clear. But just, I mean, it definitely... In the 20th century, it turned out that the, democ- the democratic states, like the US, were more successful yep. militarily. Absolutely. And they seem to think that's because of democracy, the concept of democracy. But um, yeah, it's basically because this was more compatible with the free market economy. Yeah. So there were more resources to gather. Yeah, I think it's all about markets. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I don't think it's the democracy as a... Democracy provides nice justification also, but... I mean, then in a not like in a in a kind of a dictatorship, you don't need the justification mm-hmm. actually. So, so that was a very that was really interesting. I, th- I thought it's like the this okay. side of democracy because we never look at it that way. Have another nice quote <laughs> as an indication of how different early nationalism was from later varieties. The German-speaking nobles of the Prussian League petitioned the King of Poland to place Prussia under Polish rule. Largely because even then the Polish king was a relatively weak monarch who was not expected to rule with the same rigor as the Teutonic order. Mm-hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Do you have anything to say about this? <laughs> Actually, uh, um, Prussia, the Polish, <laughs> the Polish king was a relatively weak. <laughs> What's up with that? Yeah, this like crazy 18th century sorts of politics. All right. Teutonic order. I don't even know what that is. Yeah. Not, not Do you have anything else? I don't know. Mm. Chapter five. No, just the other, like maybe also on nationalism. I, I wrote down that um, like they say it's it's kind of like a corollary to mass democracy, and it helps democracy sometimes because it makes it e- easier to mobilize even more resources. Mm-hmm. Because people identify with their nations. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Which is an interesting thought because sometimes you think that I mean national nationalism also gave rise to kind of dictatorship mm-hmm. in like italy and also austria in the 20s and 30s and the nazis yeah but it also goes well if it's like kind of contained nationalism apparently it's um it's it goes well with democracy as well but i wouldn't maybe wouldn't say it's a corollary of of that because i think it preceded democracy like nationalism yeah it kind of goes hand in hand right that you it can go is- but it can also overturn democracy can yeah I don't. I don't think you like traditionally think of nationalism as something that promotes democracy. Not necessarily. But if you've got a strong democracy, a bit of nationalism definitely helps. And nationalism always helps, kind of mobilize the people, like Donald Trump, like make America great again. The people mm. love that. All right, moving on. Chapter six: The mega politics of the information age, the triumph of efficiency over power. Hmm. Um, ah, that was the chapter with the the labor unions and stuff, right? Ah, yeah, where he goes on to the 
the economics of like yeah labor unions yeah because you like used to have these big huge in industries yeah. are more yeah you, you are more vulnerable these, to, yeah, exactly. to labor unions or to coercion 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 by the by the workers yeah because you have like this big factory and every part is, is dependent on the other and if one group of workers stops working like the whole the whole uh, yeah i think factory they the, 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 like the sheer invent, um, invention of the the assembly line yeah makes makes the whole system very vulnerable yeah, to it puts a big all sorts of bullseye on on the back yeah. of the of the factory exactly yeah because and nowadays like if you, like at, at the company i work for or, or like at all, all these it companies nobody thinks about going on a strike it's like completely ridiculous yeah but actually i thought about this when i was reading that so like i mean there's still labor unions today right and also in austria there's the, the I mean, I think it's it's technically it's still the labor union, or maybe like even the like the bigger sort of mm -hmm. organization of the labor unions that kind of the social they're called the social partners, and these are the ones that um, so the social partners are the kind of the labor unions and the the employers, the you know the kind of mm -hmm. organization of the employers, and every year in autumn these two negotiate the new like what's going to be the new. Um, uh, Like what, what they will be paid the next year. There's always a big thing and like the media kind of reports how it's going, how much, how many percent the employees are going to get next year. There's a big thing. And then I thought like in some branches, like yours, for example, I don't think that even happens. Like these negotiations, I don't think they actually even take place. I don't think yeah. that's the labor union of the IT consultants and they kind of negotiate. Not the really, rise, no. the pay rise with the employers. Yeah, I think it's like a historic thing. Yeah. With, uh, like because uh, because here, like in this book, there were like assassinations going on and the labor union was like really strong. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's they, all like a historic, yeah. uh, it's a vestige of, of those times. And yeah. nowadays, I don't think. But now, it still happens. It also, still happens. As I explained, it still happens. It's like still there's happens, still. But, but it doesn't feel that, like, especially when, like, like, for example, the car industry, it has to compete with. Japan and the US and like in the US the the whole Detroit labor unions were really strong. Yeah. Like the whole General Because they Motors. Had no, like they had very little competition. Yeah, exactly, but now it's all dead. Like yeah. they they don't have any like the American car industry except for Tesla seems like kind of dead. Yeah. Like it's nothing compared to how strong it was so the, these like I I don't like the labor unions cuz yeah. like I think from a free market perspective they just make everything worse. But I think it's like the reason why it's become pretty like a lot less relevant than it used to. It's just, I mean, they are labor unions and they're not basically no laborers anymore. Like this whole area of work just kind of vanished because we're not, yeah, there's no real workers anymore. <coughs> yeah, not as much. Yeah. Like no blue collar workers left basically or very little compared to before. Yeah, they are there, but they, like this their just, industry is struggling because they have to compete with China and stuff. Yeah, and also there's like a lot... Like there's fewer workers than before. Like you know the blue collar workers. Yeah, there's more white collar work. Exactly. Like yeah. More information. Yeah. Age work. This is like in Austria, or I think in all over Europe, this is a big problem for the like the socialist parties because mm -hmm. their core voters used to be workers, but these workers kind of this whole group of voters they is all disappearing. Got, they all got replaced by China. Yeah, stuff. or they got no, or they just kind of moved on to better jobs, but then they don't. They're not going to be socialists anymore. Mm. Or, yeah. So I think labor unions are not that strong anymore because labor has changed. And like IT, people like you don't need the labor union. 
Um, so, yeah, so they say, look, here's a quote, there is no development that will contribute more dramatically to the disaggregation of the sovereignty and the rise of government a la carte than the emergence of a cyber economy that altogether transcends physical borders. So this is the one thing, like the, the fact that physical borders becoming, like with the work from home, physical borders becoming less important um, because of the cyber economy. Um, yeah. That kind of makes the, you know, contributes to the rise of government a la carte. So you have, governments compete more with each other. Yeah, because they can't, um, they don't have like a monopoly or the, the, like the local monopoly on violence is not important anymore. Like the state used to be kind of used to have this local, a state is some, someone who has a local monopoly on violence. And that's not important anymore because this kind of the, like the territory is not that important anymore. I think territory is important because you still got to li live somewhere and you only want to live somewhere where there's no crime. Yeah, where it's rather stuff. nice as well. But then the question is, do you maybe a private company can do that? But what's more the thing is that the states compete now with one another because people can choose now in mm -hmm. which state do I want to live and do my home office work from home. Yeah. Um, so the states compete now, now with one another for like the cheaper tax taxes and stuff. And maybe that's that is something that we should make use of, like just move to a to a better state with cheaper taxes. Yeah, but see, that's like they they constantly suggest to do that, right? Yeah. But I think like if you think about these states, then I mean, of course, there's some kind of tax paradises that are also nice, like the Cayman Islands. I think a nice place to live. Mm -hmm. But then there's other states, like not every state manages to like be a nice place to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you don't move to that one. Yeah, but I think that so I think one of the reasons why or something like the US, I think will all like or is still a very popular place to for people to go to live. If, yeah, to live to go and live, even though it's kind of a it's not a tax haven. Yeah, That's absolutely somehow, not. Like, yeah, the US is like one of the only like two countries in the world where if you have the citizenship, you pay the tax. Like all of Europe is red and residency. Yeah, based. but you still, the like the US manages to be very attractive. Yeah, because of, I think because of like free markets, they got the best companies, right? The most interesting, innovative. Yeah, yeah. Companies. So they're doing, so it's not that like it's still, but I mean, I think they say that. But if you can work from home for a US company from Mexico. Yeah, but still, I think people like, I mean, still like, because if you, if you follow this, this argument, then nobody would be in the US anymore, right? So like the Bay Area would be deserted. Because it makes no sense for people to live there. So they would live in Mexico and do work remotely. But, but that's I not think, what happens. I think that's more and more what happens. Like I feel like. But it's still got, impossible to buy a house there. Or something. Like, like 20, prices are like still twenty years ago astronomically. But in Mexico, it's way cheaper. Yeah, but you have to agree to that, that this this whole like this whole class of people who just live in Mexico and work for some kind of company remotely. This has risen. I don't know. I, I could you, you, you think it's the same as 20 years? Like, even with Corona, you think it's the same? Maybe it's risen, but it's not. Uh, I think this, that. I think it's obvious the, the that US, this has risen. Australia and still have a very, have still very attractive place for people to live. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. But and still, it's not like the like shitty countries the like Mexico. It's about the trend. <laughs> but I think there's something yeah, to think yeah. about. Because yeah, if going. you live in Mexico, you can live like a king. <laughs> and, uh, yeah but yeah that's but that's but you're still in mexico that's the point so and there some needs people to be are, like a nicer mexico yeah, like a network yeah. state and, where and that's safer. the thing yeah and, and some states 
just never managed to make a good place to live yeah. because of the people or because of whatever. I don't know. Yeah. But I think there's one of the... It needs that, to be like the, segregated like the, communities. Like like a on the last page, I think, of the book, he says that we just have to kind of, we have to face that there are some counterproductive cultures. <laughs> yeah, and it's never gonna, yeah, like bad cultures. Yeah, and it's never going to be, like, it's impossible if you've got the bad culture, it's impossible to <laughs> make a good state. And also that's happened, I think it's at some point also in there, like, that for some people, apparently, or for some cultures, it's impossible to get good governments. They ca They can't... So, like, in Africa, mm. during colonization, like, the British and the French exported governments. But then, once they were thrown out, everything fell apart. Yeah. Because the, the locals couldn't really, didn't really manage to master yeah, so a over. functioning government for some reason. Mm. So, these states, I think, will never become attractive places to be. Well, maybe not never, but... But, but not very soon. Mm. Maybe segregation is the answer where you have like, where all these like work from home, homo type of people, home office, they just make their own little community. Yeah. And then they can, or like a city, they can, they can city pick state. up the, the trash and everything Yeah, and make it nice, <laughs> make it nice. Yeah. Mm, okay. Anything else? Next chapter. Yeah. I so. Transcending locality, the emergence of the cyber economy. God. Oh, um, I think in this chapter, he basically just, they basically just kind of predict what the, the like cyber economy is going to be like like yeah and um i think some predictions are pretty accurate um and others not so much like they've they have this, like microsurgeons so they say that like microsurgeons are going to oper operate on people remotely and there's going to be a lot less microsurgeons i think because they and they're gonna yeah i don't think that's has happened yet but what i did like um was that they predict that there was going to be a lot of customized media. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah, huge, right? Yeah, with social media yeah, feeds. Yeah. That has that's absolutely extremely happened. extremely yeah. happened, yeah. And I thought that was really... I mean, it's quite a prediction to make. In, a, in an age where you don't even have a smart... Like, not even everybody has a phone, let alone a smartphone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a good prediction. But then, I mean, I was going to say that at the beginning, but I forgot. Like, they do have a good, like, a good track record, actually. I think... They've written two books, right, before that one. So Blood in the Streets and The Great mm -hmm. Reckoning. And I think in one of them, they basically predicted the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of communism. All right. That's that's a nice prediction. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how, you know, how ac accurately they predicted it. But still, they're good predictors. So that was, yeah, the, the media thing I thought was quite, uh, really quite cool. Um, and <coughs> and I, I think they also kind of predicted like cryptocurrencies right yeah kind of in a way yeah because they said that the paper and that paper money is going to be a relic from the past eventually because paper and i thought i was very um i never thought of it that way and i frankly don't even understand exactly but you probably maybe you will you can explain it to me so they said that paper money is basically um is like it's, it's backed by the state right mm -hmm. and so they say that um The, like if paper money disappears, this will like ir like um, inflation will be eradicated altogether because they say like inflation is kind of a transaction fee for the convenience of using the currency. Yeah, I think in inflation in what is, way? Like, is like a tax. Like if like the, the inflation that is artificially produced by the national, like the Fed or something. Yeah, just by printing money. Yeah, like the states they always like to print money. So they print money and then. 
money is worthless, right? Yep. But how does it make the state richer? How does it enrich? Because like if you print the money, you can start using it. Ah, right. Okay. So they just... You just have like, if you print money, you get more money. <laughs> but it's still... And that's like a tax. That's like taking like, like, yeah, if you have a 2% inflation rate, it's like taking 2% of everyone's, everyone's money. For yourself, basically. So it's like a tax. Yeah. It's okay. just like a tax. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, I get why you lose 2%, but I didn't really understand how the state <clears throat> benefits from that. But it's yeah. just because they just, it happens because they print more money. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. So, and that was, but then I thought of the, the current inflation. Mm -hmm. Which is like ridiculously high. It's like yeah. 10%. It's like, like 10%. Yeah. And it's, but that's not state induced. Oh yeah, that absolutely is. Of course. Like with the whole Corona. Well, no, I don't no. Know. I think it's because of, because energy prices are so high. Well, energy is one reason, but the, I think it's the other is like the, the whole Through the Corona pandemic, there has been the state has paid like lots of lots of transfer monies and like borrowed a bunch of money to. But I think it's not not more than like this has happened the past 20 years in Austria, or in Europe. No, like the, the current inflation rate is really unprecedented. It's like yeah, really but big... I think that's because like mainly people say that's because of the of the war. Well, because people like to say that, but. Um... Like if, I think it has it has been rising like before the war it has already been pretty pretty high. No 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 it wasn't. Yes it was. No. So should we stop the podcast and look at the numbers? No we don't have to because I know it wasn't like that. It was like so you know like three percent or something. It's always been three percent, and then because I mean because I mean if you go to the supermarket the the reason why the prices at the supermarket are so high is precisely because producing the goods has become ex extremely expensive because energy is very expensive and transportation of the stuff is very expensive. I think that's wrong. I think it has been it has been the corona pandemic that cost a bunch of money. Well, I think you're wrong. Anyways, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. Mm, but I mean if there's a like a global thing happening then this will always cause like inflation or something. Like I think there's a, there are some factors that are beyond the control even of the government. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, so The eradication of inflation is nice, but... And also, I mean, what's happening to, to cryptocurrencies right now? I think there's been a big, um, big down downturn. Like there's been a, been, been a bust of crypto this year, mm -hmm. which is strange because you, you would assume that like if inflation is high, you, you would assume that crypto is like a hedge against inflation, but it has really fallen a lot. But that's like another topic. Um, still, the cryptocurrency is there and it works. And um, it's independent of the state, kind of. So that makes it interesting. Mm. So Do you have anything else in this? <clears throat> I have this one. Governments have become accustomed to imposing protection services that are, in Frederick C. Lane's words, of poor quality <coughs> and outrageously overpriced. This habit of charging far more than government services are actually worth developed through centuries of monopoly. So he's saying that, like, having, like, nice streets or, like, police police that kind of works is like outrageously overpriced yeah it's, it's hard to tell i don't know because i don't know how how would how, you... how that what it costs to build the street yeah but i think the, the the point here is that um basically the government can charge you anything for this yeah that's yeah. maybe more and now they have like... to compete with one another and now there was like later there comes this example with switzerland where you can negotiate your tax rate and you can have like a fixed tax you can just like if you're rich You can say like, well, I just give you 50,000 euros, no matter how much money you make. And if you make, um, if you make 50,000, that's pretty dumb. 
because you have a 100% tax rate, you lose all your money. But if you make like 1 million, you have like a tax rate of, um, yeah, 5%. Mm. I don't know if that's uh, true for everybody, really, because, you know, my half-brother lives in Switzerland, he's never... But still, the tax rate is way lower. He tra he pays like 20% tax. Yeah, but there is going to be... The, yeah, exactly. 20% is like low. Yeah, yeah. We pay like... I pay like, I don't know, 50%. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's like the... Because we're not really customers to the government, which is kind of forced to pay mm. and... The, yeah. the government just uses the money for whatever they see fit or yeah which is usually some bullshit then. <laughs> yeah because it's not like because of the you know you could say the deep state like yeah, the yeah. you know the employees the bureaucrats they decide really what happens it's not even the government probably but more well, the deep government. state deep state is the government well no i think the the deep state is like the very the firmly rooted bureaucrats hmm. but it's not like the current government necessarily whatever um, anything else on chapter no. seven? No. Next okay. chapter. Chapter eight. The end of egalitarian economics. The revolution of in earnings capacity in a world without jobs. So. Um, oh yeah. Did you did you have do you have something on Ammon's turnip? What? <laughs> Ammon's turnip. Ammon's turnip. <laughs> Ammon's. I think it, it, that was a German guy. Who's that? That was like an economist. It was something, and he um. Kind of, he introduced this model of the turnip. You what know is a what turnip? a turnip? No, it's it's like a carrot. It's some sort of root root okay. vegetable. Okay. And it's got a like a big. It's like thick in the middle, and it's got a narrow stem and a narrow root. And so this, he thinks, this represents like the 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 pyramid, like the social pyramid, which is not really a, a pyramid, but the um like a wealth distribution pyramid. Ah, this is about wealth distribution. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he said like this. Comparatively, um, comparatively uh, l like little poor people and few rich people, and in the t like the turnip is biggest in the middle, and like the middle class is the biggest. Middle middle class, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. big middle class. And this correlates with certain traits, so kind of intelligence, ambition, maybe something like so this. So what, like, so if your society is like this turnip? Yeah, Amon says the, the society. Every right. society is like a turnip. Like the wealth distribution in society is like a turnip. Um, and the, they say that the turnip is about to change mm -hmm. because there's going to be a lot less jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Because everyone competes with everyone now. So you have like a bunch of people who are really rich, who are the best at what they do and they get always hired. Uh, yes. And also, and I really love this one. It's because, um, like the good jobs disappear and what's a good job. That's a job where you were paid more than you're worth. Mm -hmm. And these jobs existed because of this kind of this corporate bloat so like corporates used to be huge and there were lots and lots of people employed who didn't really mm -hmm. do much and these jobs are disappearing all right because of competition yeah because of competition and also because these jobs are just not really like these jobs are maybe gonna yeah, disappear useless. altogether yeah. and be replaced by because you don't need like a million accountants <clears throat> Yeah, and also, like, the with the whole turnip, I feel like people are becoming, like, way older. Like, modern society is kind of maladaptive. People don't reproduce. That's what Robin Hansen said in the book and from him right now. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, the good news is that, um, so, so essentially, like, the, there's going to be, like, a, an inequality of, like, more inequality. Yeah. But the good news is, in a way, it's also, like, Equality improves also for everybody because it, it doesn't it depend where you live. It doesn't 
like overall over the globe the equality becomes so he's bigger. saying he's saying the states compared to one another will become more equal but the societies within the states are going to become more unequal unequal yeah. unequal which makes sense yeah um but yeah but yeah but i think this is i'm not so sure about i think i still think it's like it still matters if you're like in the middle of nowhere in africa Mm-hmm. it's still going to be hard to join the cyber economy because if if you if nobody ever manages to get good internet over there then yeah, you're still not a part with Elon Musk everybody can have internet yeah but so. you still have somebody to kind of <coughs> kind of <laughs> pull themselves together and get it there yeah yeah and so, the culture uh, is kind of weak here's what they were <laughs> low productivity of some modern factories that were built in poor countries have further lessened the credibility of the scarcity of capital explanation of underdevelopment. Yes, I love that. <laughs> This must be right. Had capital or skill scarcity been the main deficiency, the returns earned by both in poor jurisdictions would have been higher than in developed countries. So he's saying that big companies they don't invest <clears throat> they don't invest in like Africa Because like it doesn't work. Like, But the Ch- Chinese do now, so the Chinese But, and the Russians yeah. do, kind of. I think. But yeah, still, I mean, there are some. Yeah, in some countries, it's a kind of like a. Like it even seems to be had, a, a e- culture problem. <clears throat> even like if you have like a sweatshop where like where you pay them like very little money, it's still not worth it. It's great for the people these sweatshops because the alternatives are so bad for them. But it still doesn't pay for the big companies because you don't have like the the rule of law is weak. Maybe there's a bad culture and people just don't show up to work or I don't know. Or they steal. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't work. And here's a really nice story that um, made us both laugh. Um, the in- about colonial rule. The indigenous governments that replaced colonial rule in the countries that were not settled by Europeans drew their leaders and administrators from populations who had little experience or skill at running any type of large-scale enterprise. In many cases, especially in Africa... Infrastructure inherited from the departing colonial powers was rapidly looted, destroyed, or allowed to fall into disrepair. Telephone lines were torn, torn down by scavengers and hammered into bracelets. <laughs> Roads were no longer maintained. Rail lines became useless as road beds fell apart and locomotives break, broke down. In Zaire, the elaborate transportation infrastructure installed by the Belgian had, had, Belgians had almost totally disappeared by 1990. Only a few creaky riverboats continued to function, one of which was taken over as a kind of floating palace by the dictator. <laughs> <laughs> but I love how, how blunt they are about this, but I think like today you couldn't write something like this because it's kind of racist. It's kind of, well, I don't know if it's about race. Oh, oh my God, it's like culturalist. Cultural. Yeah, people are like, ah, multiculturalism. But we also said in open borders, like we are pro-open borders, right? Mm-hmm. But like, Because we want the money. Yeah, yeah, it's better for everyone. It's also, yeah, but um, yeah, the culture is sometimes, sometimes pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe races are bad as well. I don't know. What? What's bad? Ah, nothing. <laughs> um, okay, you've got so many more quotes here. Were the streets of London to be lighted and paved at the expense of the national treasury, is there any probability that they would be so well lighted and paved as they are at present, or even at so small an expense? The expense, besides, instead of being raised by a local tax upon the inhabitants of each particular street, parish or district in London would, in this case, 
be defrayed out of the general revenue of the state and would consequently be raised by a tax upon all the inhabitants of the kingdom, of whom the greater part derived no sort of benefits from the lighting and paving of the streets of London. For London, substitute Toronto, and you are inside an equation that will be running in the minds of many in Alberta and British Columbia. The logic of devolution will prove infectious. Hmm. Hmm. So he says, after the nation-state, in the place of a nation, you will see at first smaller jurisdictions at the provincial level and ultimately saw smaller sovereignties, enclaves of various kinds like medieval city-states surrounded by their hinterlands. As strange as it may seem to people inculcated with the importance of politics, policies of these new mini-states will in many cases be informed more by entrepreneurial positioning than by political wrangling. These new fragmented sovereignties will cater to different tastes, just as hotels and restaurants do, enforcing specific regulations within their public spaces that appeal to the market segments from which they draw their customers. This is not to say, of course, that there are not special problems arising from the organization of protection on a nomadic basis. <laughs> hmm. Nice quote. Nice quote. Um, but, um, yeah, I thought this, this kind of reminded me also of the nation, uh, of the network state, right? Yeah, yeah, it's very much. It's very much like I. Precursor to the network state. Yeah. And I thought that was quite, quite interesting. Um, they predict that, like, the nation state with, like, the more diverse, kind of, or, like, the more, the more different interest groups there are in one nation state, the quicker, quicker it will fall. And at some point, I think they said that, Canada and Italy will be among the first to fall. And by 2025, they won't exist anymore. Yeah, he says Canada, Italy and Belgium. Are very instable. But it's true. I mean, I don't know about Canada, cause, but like, you know, in Italy, but I mean, also Italy, I think. I mean, I think in, in Europe, actually, Spain is more prone to be, you know, to kind of... Well, with Catalonia yeah, and stuff. Yeah, to separate, yeah, but in Italy, to get you have the stuff sliced going. up. You have the North Italy, South Italy divide. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. But then also Scotland, like the UK, is very much prone to, or the, I guess the UK, I don't know if it's going to be the UK for long, because Scotland wants to leave. Yeah, there are lots, been of, lots to of, leave for 10 years. <laughs> lots of tensions. Yeah. In the post-industrial period, jobs will be tasks you do, not something you have. Mm -hmm. Well, this makes sense. It's all, it's all a consequence of everyone competing with everyone and work from home stuff. Yeah. And the fall of the huge corporates, like huge corporations that can afford to employ people they don't really need and also the state like if the nation state actually ceased to exist just imagine how many people were out of jobs how many bureaucrats <coughs> like civil engineers there are we'll have to do something productive then yeah. so yeah it's quite likely like the, look this is very interesting the model business organization of the new information economy may be a movie production company oh yeah that's nice I like that yeah. yeah such enterprises can be very sophisticated with budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars. While they are often large operations, they are also temporary in nature. Yeah, yeah he thinks like this movie business is really the future. Because like these movies, they're all freelancers. They all come together. For a couple of weeks, for one project. Yeah, yeah. and then they um, yeah, move apart. And this seems to work really well. Yeah, I guess this, like, this whole project-based work gonna is going to be even bigger. Yeah, You hire somebody for a project and then yeah. they move on to another project. Because like, wh what is the reason why you even employ people? You do so maybe because of. But the, it's again, it totally depends on the on the branch you're in, right? Yeah, yeah. Because like at the pharmacy, it doesn't really. I mean, unless like it doesn't really make sense to hire somebody 
Yeah, based on like project based. You need to have them all the time. Yeah, like the pharmacy yeah. needs to be open twenty four seven, and um, yeah, you need to you need it to be very reliable and be able to plan. Yeah, you don't want to plan all the time. Like have a guy for a day and then he moves away. Yeah, and like today you can't. It's very hard to predict how many customers are going to be coming in. Mm-hmm. So you can't say. Well, you can come call somebody like as backup, but you can't tell everybody to stay home because there's only going to be like so many customers today. So in Ooh. some branches, not. All right. Here's a, here's a part that I really like. The economic value of memorization as a skill will fall, oh, yeah. <laughs> while the importance of synthesis and creative application of information will rise. Anna, so think about <laughs> yeah. this, because you memorize stuff all the time. Yeah, and I'm very good at that as well. Yeah, but the skill is, is becoming yeah. useless. I'm going to be like... You I'm will be replaced. Be, I, no, no, I'm going to join the legions of losers. <laughs> <laughs> can become a legionnaire (laughs) (laughs) but in the legion of losers so you need to branch out like stop memorizing (laughs) i need to like just write them down i need to like become better at the create creative application of synthesis (laughs) or something like do you have the full quote because it was uh, something like uh, very um next one is also interesting due to encryption which which gives individuals an ability to steal undetected Honesty will be a more highly valued characteristic of business associates. So honesty is becoming more valuable, he says. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I think it does because uh, trust is related to honesty, right? And uh, yeah, yeah. you always say, look, people say the whole like crypto current, like the whole crypto is heavily dependent on trust. Well, cr- kind of crypt, what the cryptos always say is that you want to, you want a lot of stuff to be trustless. So you want it to not depend on trust, but, um, well, but for some things, you, you, I guess you need trust, you know. I think you need it, like, and I think that's something Harari actually said, you know, from the, mm-hmm. or what, what was the book where, where we, no, there was something else. Was it maybe Julia Gaylord? Like, you need this level of trust in a society that credit card works, like credit cards work. Ah, that was, yeah. I think yeah, that yeah, was yeah. one of our. Yeah, one of the books. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you know, if people change all the time and you have the work from home, you know, you kind of rely, or maybe you can have like reputation systems. If you have better reputation systems, you don't need trust that much. But if people are all like w- living in the same place, going to the office all the time, um, it's more easy to trust them, right? Like you don't need to be like an honest individual because like people go to go there every day, you can see their faces. Yeah, you can see whether they work or not. Yeah, I think yeah, for the exactly. home office, especially, you need to, you need more, you need to, like a level of trust. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Oh, and then the move to gated communities is all but inevitable. So gated communities like in Brazil and stuff. Walling out troublemakers is an, is an effective as well as traditional way of minimizing criminal violence in times of weak central authority. So that's, I pro- that's what I proposed like 10 minutes ago. Have like more segregation and gated communities. But they, I think there's worth in living in a country where you don't have to be... Well, you don't need to have this. You yeah. need to be walling out yourself or like walling out others, walling in yourself. Yeah. If the state is so weak and you pay way, way less taxes, you're going to maybe need that. Yeah, but then I don't want to be in that state maybe necessarily. Yeah, but do you want to pay, pay like 50% of taxes for this one thing? Just build a wall, it's a cheap wall. But do you want to like confine yourself? Well, actually, I'm, I'm pro-open borders kind of. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm, I'm, but still, like keeping I'm out the criminals. Not pro confinement. I don't like to confine myself to an area because I know that I can't leave. Because if I do, I'll get killed. I don't think that's my idea. I don't think that uh, provides a lot of freedom. <coughs> Quite the opposite, really. All right, let's move on. <laughs> 
There may be a tr transitional advantage to private over publicly traded firms because private firms will enjoy greater leeway in escaping costs imposed by governments. Yeah, there is this thing with, with like a with like a shareholder company. You know, you you need to have all these meetings. You need to have like a like a how do you call it like the supervisory board and mm, stuff. Yeah. You have lots of tax obligations. And if you're if you're like a real private company, you can you can more easily escape government, right? Do you agree? Makes sense, like especially for a small company. Yeah. I feel like small companies like for like small not... companies it's way easier to commit like fraud, basically to def defraud the government yeah, is way easier. If you're small. Yeah, well, it depends what you do, really. If you're a small company and you're based, if you're a restaurant, it's not that easy. Or maybe but like I for a restaurant like re special, but I feel like restaurants cheat yeah, all but the like time. That, they skip yeah. to taxes all the time. Yeah, hospitality is. I think that's uh, like a special. But if you're a shop, then it's not that easy. But if you're a really big company, you're like a target for the government. The government yeah, but you're like, you're, if you're a small like a small business, you're also a target for the government. Like my parents get hassled by the like you know the finance all the time. Yeah, but I think it's less than when you're a publicly traded company. I think I agree. Yeah, yeah. But it's easier because if you're a small company. On the other hand, it's very easy for the you know the finance to come in and have a very very I feel because like, it's, I feel it's like harder you, for you to cheat maybe because and they can. If you're a what? If you're a small company. I think it's I think it's easier to cheat. Like if you if you're a small company and you don't like 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 fat people, you can um, just not hire the fat people. Okay, but right? we're not talking about. Yeah, but it's Equality not like now. that. No, but but if, if you're a big tra publicly traded company and you have anywhere written down like something that like you cannot enforce this policy of not hiring fat people. Yeah, but it's still like trust me, it's not that easy to cheat the to cheat finance if just because you're yeah, a but, small business. Yeah, but yeah, I agree. It depends. But compared to the publicly traded firm. But then think of Wirecard, how they got away with. I, I don't know the details of the Wirecard scandal. But uh, well, they I'm, just faked everything and got away with that. Yeah, also for, the for Sam years. Bankman freed yeah. also, yeah, with the FTX. Well, let's move on. Don't know. Many members of learned professions will be displaced by interactive information retrieval systems. What is a learned profession? Learned, <coughs> a learned profession. Yeah. Mm. But I Maybe. feel like a pharmacist could be. <laughs> it Honestly, sounds like something a pharmacist could be. It, yeah, <laughs> a learned profession. Like being displaced by interactive information <laughs> retrieval system. It's more like a like interaction, interactive like drug retrieval. I even, I even wrote you. I even made a note, Anna. Like, make sure you don't get replaced by an interactive information retrieval system. I don't really know <laughs> what that is, but yeah, basically like a robot, or like a computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I guess, like the, the or cashier, like, or, maybe. Or like the whole tax stuff, you know, like tax bullshit. Like I recently did my taxes and online it was very easy. It's automatic. Yeah, but you didn't get to, like, I think you're always better off if you have Going an actually, human. yeah, yeah, because they, they know the tricks of the trade and they can actually help you. You just did the normal thing and that was all right. But if you want to save taxes, people say. Um, next chapter. All right. Nationalism, reaction, and the new Luddites. I never knew that they were actually named after the guy, Ned Lutt. Oh, was a guy called Luddite? Yeah. Ah, it's that's what they called Luddites. All okay. right. Yeah. I thought it was, uh, I don't know, something else. Um... An intense and even violent nationalist reaction centered among those who lose status, income, and power when what they consider to be their ordinary life is disrupted by political devolution and new market arrangements. Okay, saying it's going to be an um, intense, violent nationalist reaction. Uh, yes, and I think it's like 
Like they, the Trump thing, like these people kind of lost the rednecks. Yeah, and the also Trump voters are kind of low status. Yeah, and they they, and they <laughs> mentioned how exactly this is going to go down, and I think we can see that. So the losers, like the new losers, are going to be very hostile towards immigrants. Yeah, people are very hostile towards immigrants. Um, they're going to be opposing globalization. I think that's also a very yeah a theme. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're going to be ultra-nationalist. Some of them are, yeah. Yeah, in Europe you have a bunch of... Yeah, in Europe it's very... But also Trump. I mean, Trump is ultra-nationalist. Yeah, kind of. Of course. What yeah. if not, like, make America great again, America first. Um, and I guess along the way, but we're not there yet. Like, they're going to be very hostile towards um, rich information elite. But we don't have the... I think the... Hmm. I don't... I think the information elite are doing a very good job disguising themselves. Hmm. Yeah, they're very um, woke and leftist kind of. Really? Like yeah, yeah. Like all the Elon software, Musk, all the software engineers. No, he not Elon Musk, but all the all the people who work for used to work for Twitter, for example. Mm. And then they predict that they're going to be <coughs> neo luddite attacks, um, yeah, which who, we no. haven't seen. I guess. I, I mean, do you think there's? Well, I don't know, but in Germany, like the Uber is banned. Ah, yeah. maybe. Yeah. 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 I think that's very very luddite. It's of course, true. you have the concentr- good, yeah. you have the concentrated interest of the taxi lobby, you know, which is like like Burnham and like this Mankur Olson guy said that like the concentrated interest is really what drives politics. And yeah, in Germany they proved too strong and they beat Uber, which sucks because like the taxis are super expensive. It's way better in the US or wherever you have Uber or Lyft. Actually, but in in Austria it's now the same price. Yeah. It still exists, but it's the same price as the taxi, basically. Yeah, but, but that's, I think it's because the taxi just integrated yeah. itself. Or maybe they had to, the Uber had to kind of raise their price level. The nationalist and Luddite reaction will be strongest, however, not among the very poor, but among persons of middling skills, underachievers with credentials, who came of age during the industrial era and faced downward mobility. <coughs> Do you think so? Um, I mean... Like people say that this kind of the middle, the middle class is disappearing, right? Mm. So, so these maybe people of middling yeah. skills. I don't know what. Yeah, they are these people who have been doing okay for themselves, but are underachievers with credentials. Maybe pharmacists. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> In Latin America, incomes have traditionally been more unequal. The leading welfare states will lose their most talented citizens through desertion. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah but i still think it's it's going to be the question where are you going to go because people still want to be somewhere where it's nice and somewhat safe and where the sun shines in the winter like yeah in america yeah but you i think you want to have this basic level of security that you don't get killed yeah, everywhere that's true belgium and canada will probably be among the first yeah, yeah. in the oecd to dissolve in the new millennium well i don't know I feel like Belgium and Canada seem pretty stable. That that one didn't really pan out. Yeah, but I don't really know. Like, we don't know anything about Canada. Yeah, we don't really know. And also, it does fe- feel a bit like a house of cards. Canada? Uh, no, Belgium. Belgium. <laughs> well, also that, I don't know. I mean, they've got the, the Flanders, right? The Flemish. The people who speak Flemish. Mm-hmm. Maybe they want to get, get out. Um, but... <coughs> It is ahistorical and wrong to think that loyalties to the land of one's fathers, the patria, necessarily entails loyalty to an institution resembling a nation state. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but that's like 
because like nation states are essentially like imagined units like they are yeah but isn't the land of one's fathers an imagined unit well i think it's just as, just as much because i mean <laughs> that's also just a like a sentiment that i say this is like land of my fathers so these guys say it's a historical and wrong yeah but i think it's just as much just as kind of weird to be like i have some sort of relation to the to the land of my fathers it's what you think yeah they think that land of one's fathers is cool but like the nation state, state loyalty is, not. is retarded no. yeah but it's it's the same i think does it's, it make sense to have this distinction why is it not really not really i think people nowadays would be like a pretty pretty don't make a difference between the like the land of the fathers and the nation state i think they do maybe Do you have a like a special relationship with the land of your fathers? <laughs> no. Well, yeah, but I'm, I'm like an immigrant. But like, I think it makes sense to like hate like the Russian government, for example. But it's like Russia as a country. Yeah, but like being like, yeah, Russia is cool, but Putin is retarded. I think that's a very sensible position, actually, to hate the government, but like the. Yeah, but still, I think if you if you ask people if they like Austria, they're not going to be like this is. People could be, I like Austria, like the nation. Yeah, yeah they like the, I like the people, and the, but, yeah, but the state is like the government. Yeah. Don't like the state. I think it makes, absolutely makes sense. You but I think have it's all loyalty. conflated, kind of. Yeah, it kind of merges into one another. But there is an important difference between the government and the people. Yeah, and but the like, land and stuff. But if you say like the government, then also you mean maybe like the very temporary, the people that run the country right now. Yeah, but Not, maybe also you mean like the whole system. Like the political system. Yeah. Yeah. What I really liked about this bit was the um, the thing about the languages. So they they say that um, they predict that languages will kind of local dialects will become more important again because languages were introduced as a means to kind of to pro like to promote the nation state. So French, for example, was only introduced kind of or like made the official language by the the revolution mm -hmm, mm -hmm. people. Yeah, because it makes it easier to run the state. If everybody speaks the same language. Yeah, but now with mass media, I don't think the dialects are going to be coming back. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting point. Like, I think the and, dialects are dead. Yeah, but I mean, like, which language are you going to speak anyways? Like, if you if they disappear, if languages disappear. Um, but they proved to be so for for France, they um, like the French, like the official language French, proved apparently proved to be quite beneficial during the um, Napoleonic Wars because the French army was the only one. Where everybody spoke the same language, like especially the Russian army, like people wouldn't yeah, understand like, yeah, each other. Yeah, they had like problems. Yeah. some of them spoke German, German or French. Like even. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to look at the language as kind of like a, like a, a state thing, yeah, a tool. Exactly. We believe that coercion is a crucial element in human society, a larger one that is usually recognized. Coercion helps determine the security of property and limits the ability of individuals to enter into mutually beneficial cooperation. Coercion underlies all politics. Hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of like open borders again. Because if like someone has an employment contract or like, you know, it's like this example from open borders where like people who are against immigration are like, are like, um, yeah, preventing others and engaging in mutually beneficial cooperation, you know. Ambitious people understand that the migratory way of life is the price of getting ahead. Migratory way of life. Hmm. Don't think that's necessarily true for everyone. <coughs> hmm. Did you did you like, do you remember the whole, this whole part about the like the genetics of um, 
like the genetics, like the genetic component to like having a nation state. Genetic, like, what does yeah, that mean? Yeah, genetic. What do you mean? Genetics, like, you know, the whole inclusive fitness thing. Like, do you remember that bit? No. That was quite interesting. So they tried to kind of um, given like a genetic or like a biological explanation for the, like the, the advent of nation states. And apparently like there's this concept of inclusive fitness which explains why like humans like especially pe and like i think like homo sapiens is the only species that does that that kind of feel responsibility or want to like for for the for their group especially even if they're not like their direct relatives and they say, seem to think that this is kind of um yeah that this is the reason why like people made nation states like this was that inclusive in the book? fitness yeah all right <laughs> Did you read the book? <laughs> <laughs> You're mixing up your books. Okay, I got some other good parts. In general, <laughs> too long. tax consumers will be losers. It is usually they who could not increase their wealth by moving to another jurisdiction. Much of the income is lodged in the roots of national political jurisdiction rather than conveyed by market valuations. Yeah. See, this is what I was saying. Like they repeat the same thing all over again. Yeah. Oh, then there's the example from the from the Swiss where you pay the fixed tax rate, like, not a rate, but like a fixed amount of money, uh -huh. and it doesn't yeah. matter how much uh, money you earn. Like this is like there's this this bogus kinship thing, and I think this is like they give this as, as a genetic explanation why people are so prone to nationalism, like to to fall for nationalism, because if you can if you can install in people that they have like the share share a language, they share a homeland, they have like they look similar. And they maybe have common descent, then they will have this kind of they will get the feeling. Yeah. yeah, they will get the feeling it's like the family, and this is why this. And they will defend each other. Yeah, and like, yeah. Um, and co cooperate more. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Like oh. it's in our genes, apparently, even. Yeah, and Balaji says that like with the network state, maybe ideas can hold people together as well, like a shared ideology. Yeah, but maybe. I think it's not as strong as kind of like similar. Like the race. Yeah. Yeah, but you could make a network state like. Uh, with racist, uh, like a, you could make a racist network state. <laughs> <laughs> We're all white, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or something. By the year 2012, outlays for entitlements and interest on the national debt will consume all tax revenues collected by the federal government. There will not be one, sef one cent left over for education, children's programs, highways, national defense, or any other discretionary program. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, but that, that does seem true. Like the whole taxes, it's, it also feels like a house of cards. Like the whole finances of the state. Yeah, it's true. But but <laughs> like I feel like the, the the state spends money, but it and and creates like has huge deficit spending, but it doesn't really. There's no consequences. Don't you feel that way? Yeah, yeah. Maybe it will all fall down. Maybe but there's maybe like, like a, like a huge fiscal like, crisis at some point. But Peter Thiel says like with two percent more growth. You could fix like like if you have a four percent GDP growth, you could yeah. fix literally all problems. Mm -hmm. So growth is really important. Yeah, but even like even this, all of this, like the the horrendous financial situation of many states is not really doesn't really seem to be an issue. I mean, I don't know why, but yeah, but at some point it must it must become an issue. Like you cannot. Yeah, spend and you feel like it's all monopoly than... money. Like they're all, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, the state yeah. spends like thirty-five billion on Corona. Yeah. Whatever. I think at some and it point doesn't, it's it's bound to right. It's, it's bound to but bound to fall down the whole house of cards. And then but you maybe got that's a, what they say. Like migrate. They, yeah, but they, they, maybe that's what they say that the nation states are going to collapse in a fiscal crisis eventually. Mm -hmm. 
that's going to be like the the last step because it's not financially you know, stable anymore. <coughs> but I feel the past tells us that's not what happened. But all right, here's a big part that I really like about like he's where, where he's like anti woke because <laughs> nowadays like wokeism is really strong, and they say like in 1997. New myths of discrimination. Many categories of officially oppressed people were designated, especially in North America. Individuals and groups with designated status as victims were informed that they were not responsible for shortcomings in their own lives. Rather, the default was set to lie with dead white males of European descent and the oppressive power structure already rigged to the disadvantage of exclusive excluded groups. To be black, female, homosexual, Latino, francophone, disabled, etc., was to be entitled to recompense for past repression and discrimination. If Lush's argument is to be believed, the purpose of heightening a sense of victimization was to undermine nations, making it easier for a new footloose information elite to escape the commitments and duties of citizenship. We are not entirely convinced that the new elite, especially most of those in the mass media, are cunning enough to reason to such a posture. It will almost be reassuring to feel that they were. We see the growth of victimization as mainly an attempt to buy social peace by not only widening membership in the meritocracy, as Lush argues, but also by reconstituting the rationalizations for income redistribution. The new sport of victimology emerged in its most exaggerated form in North America because information technology penetrated more deeply there. We suspect that new myths of discrimination will be common to one degree or another in all industrial societies in their senile state. The multi-ethnic welfare states in North America were simply more vulnerable to the temptation to foist the cost of income redistribution on the private sector. They were able to do this while inflaming a sense of grievance and entitlement by blaming the structure of society as a whole and white men in general for the economic shortcomings of various subcultures within society. This is pretty prescient. Like I've, This is pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, I like thought so too. It yeah. basically pred predicts the whole woke movement. Yeah, but I'm still not sure whether, like, but I think this is especially big in the US that, um, like with the whole, um, affirmative action, right? So yeah. to counteract, I, I don't know if it's that big in, it gets bigger in Europe, mm -hmm. but I don't think, it, like, in Europe, the state actively victimizes people hmm. yet. Yeah, maybe not that much as in the US. But then there's not, not that many minorities, maybe. Oh, yeah, that's It's true. less of a melting pot. And so, mm. but that, yeah, that was. But like with mass immigration. Like in like France is very much yeah yeah but feels very Arab. But do you think they are? I think that the Arabic immigrants are not that easy to victimize. Maybe I don't know. Hmm. Imagine a special passport issued by the League of so by the League of Sovereign Individuals, identifying the holder as a person under protection of the League. Yeah, This that is the very reminded that very much reminded me of the you know the, the crazy ones that were arrested in Germany. Ah, yeah, just recently. The, the yeah. Reichsbürger wanted to the, overthrow the government. Yeah, yeah, but like in general, like overthrowing the old stuff is a bad is a bad path. It doesn't work. You have to do, make something new from scratch, like a network state. But it's not that easy because you need like a. I mean, but then there are states without territory, like the the, the ISIS, you know, the mm -hmm. Islamic State, which basically has no territory. But yeah. it's not that easy. Like you need, if you even if you buy some land somewhere, then you're still not going to be At able to do you what need, you want. Yeah, yeah. Like the whole network, like how to found a new state is. A, it's not that easy, hard, yeah. Because yeah. all the land is basically already divided up. Most of it, I guess. All right. Do you want to move on to the next chapter? Um, yeah, I don't like. Like my notes kind of explode. Like these yeah, chapters know, in the end yeah. are becoming more interesting. Is that the twilight? Ah. The twilight of democracy. 
Twilight of Democracy. The state socialist system was predicated upon the doctrine that the state owned everything. The democratic welfare state, by contrast, made more limited initial claims. It pretended to allow private ownership, although of a contingent kind, and thereby harnessed superior incentives to mobilize outputs. Instead of mismanaging everything from the start, democratic governments in the West allowed individuals to own property and accumulate wealth. Only after the wealth had been created did the democratic nation states step in to tax a large fraction of it away. So they say that's what, that's the Cold War, like the, the US allowing like kind of bit of private property and markets. And that's what they want. But in the end, they, they just take it all the way. But they take, they can take so much away because people can create more wealth. Yeah, they could create yeah. more. Yeah. But that's also what Marx says. Like Marx says in, in his capital that um, you need to have like capitalism at first. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like that's one of the famous Marx things. And then you. Uh, and then you, yeah, then you take the it. The communist swoops in and. But even Marx says that basically you need that to create the wealth. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the, the problem I feel in the Soviet Union. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Remember, when you look outside politics, there is scarcely any evidence of executives, administrators, coaches, or other professional leaders being selected democratically. To the contrary, the most successful leaders are routinely hired by proprietors through selection processes, in which those with the greatest interests at stake have an unequal and disproportionately greater say in determining the outcome. Yeah. That's what Curtis Yavon always says, that like all the systems that, yeah. that work are non-democratic, like Elon Musk. Like with Tesla and stuff, there's not a democracy or like oh, but Apple, actually, but actually, Steve Jobs. It's funny you should mention Elon Musk because, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen, but like he democratically decided, like had people decide that he should step down as CEO of Twitter. And he made like a Twitter poll yeah. where, where he asked Yeah, the that's question. like a democratic kind of yeah, kind step, of. right? But he can decide if he abides by that or not. But why and does also, he want the legi legitimisi legitimization? I, th I think it, it was like a PR move. He wanted it. I think it... Yeah, I think he lost a bit of face because he lost that poll. Mm -hmm. But, he's but still like in there. general, like no matter the outcome of that poll, like he's not going to do Twitter forever. Like at some point, he's going to delegate it, mm -hmm. and he's not saying within the there was no time limit. So basically, if you have yes, um, go step down of Twitter, he'd be like, okay, I'll step down. So I'll search for another CEO. If if people say no, he's going to be like, yeah, I'm king of Twitter. But like at some point, like no matter the outcome mm -hmm. of that poll. At some point, he's gonna like appoint a new CEO. Yeah, this exact same thing happened in Austria in the 70s. Like the What? chancellor had, there was this referendum whether the they, they built this nuclear power plant. Yeah. And then they had the referendum whether it should be used or not, whether they should turn it on or not. So what happened? And the chancellor said he was very much pro nuclear power, yeah. which would have been great. Yeah. And he was very much he, he's like I said I'll step down if the vote comes out no. Yeah. Like we, we don't want the nuclear yeah. power. And he came out, no, but he's still like... Ah, he didn't step down. Yeah. No. He stayed in power anyways <coughs> for a while like, until his the period was over. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so he he actually... But this is a very Curtis Yarvin kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah. But he suggests... They suggest other things as well. Like they suggest this... Like like in ancient Greek, they kind of just randomly selected people to run the government for a while. Ah, yeah. With, with the, the beans sort, or the something. The sortition system. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's and I think that's sortition. a very interesting system, like, because you <coughs> literally take away all incentives to kind of enrich yourself and your group. If you know that there's no chance in five years you're going to be selected again, then you can really do what you think is best. Yeah, but maybe you'll do like short-term stuff that makes your no. life better after the five years. Like Curtis Yavon would argue that like in a monarchy, you have like long-term incentive. Mm-hmm. 
Which, which, you know, that's another topic to argue about if that makes sense. Because like a lot of these monarchs, they just make like useless wars, I think, without really thinking that long term. But you could argue but that... But it's hard to think. I think the thing is, it's just hard to think long term. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the, the point is about incentives. Like, do you yeah. have an incentive? They say it in the beginning of the book and like, it makes sense to analyze stuff thinking about the incentives. Yeah. That's what everyone says. Like Robin Hansen says this, Charlie Munger says this, incentives matter. <laughs> Oh. But I think this is an interesting thing. Or even better, just pay them. Like pay people if they do a good job. Yeah, that's called an incentive. No, no. Um, Paying people if they do a good job is an incentive. The, the money is Yeah, yeah I was talking about other incentives though. Like, yeah, but like in the more abstract point, but incentives being important. Yeah, but Lee Kuan Yew does it. The Singapore dictator. He always gets brought up because he's like the only successful dictator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But paying leaders on the basis of their performance is just a logical extension of Lee's successful flexi-wage program in Singapore, which pays government employees on the basis of the real growth of the Singapore economy. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. oh, I, really, I want to really, read the book by Lee Kuan Yew. It's an interesting guy. Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, interesting concept. But I still prefer, <laughs> like, prefer, prefer the, the random selection thing, because then you... So, like, politics obviously attracted a certain type of personality, right? Yeah. That's messiah the, the, personality. Yeah, also the power-hungry guy who's, like, uh, who lies to the people, who makes the people feel good, but doesn't do the stuff that's... Like the Machiavellian type. Like the social desirability. Like, Brian Kaplan always says, like, the most important bias kind of social desirability bias. People mm -hmm. do and say what is socially desirable that sounds good, but it's actually bad. Yeah. But it's culturally accepted. It's in the Overton window. You can say it. And um, So if you kind of, and it's yeah, questionable the, whether these are the best people to run a country. Yeah, yeah. The and system kind of incentivizes you to be kind of a liar and succumb to social desirability and the dumb masses. Or you know. just enrich yourself also. Yeah. Like pretend that you, are, you want to be liked by the masses, but really... <coughs> There's one note I have. Microeconomics generally assumes that the price mechanism is the most effective means of coordinating resources for their most valued uses. Because, yeah, my markets work, right? Markets are great. But then it makes me think of Uber. I feel like Uber, because in Uber, the price gets determined top down. Uber says there's no like market, like Uber does the price in the background. So sometimes it can be good to have like some kind of central authority. Like in general, I'm super pro markets, but like I think How Uber works is really interesting. Hmm. Firms are mainly artifacts of information and transaction costs, which information technologies tend to reduce drastically. Yeah. Hmm. So terms, uh, firms will get smaller. Is that what this um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. They will get smaller and you will not have to... Like if everything is super smooth, if you can like employ someone for three days with a contract, if it's all like easy peasy... And you have no transaction costs and you have like mark online markets and you can immediately find everything you need. You don't not need to employ people for like an indeterminate amount of time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also lack of reputation systems, all these, it's all like sand in the gears of, of a market. All right, let's get to chapter 11. Yeah. That's the last chapter, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. I've got a lots of notes for that one. Morality and crime in the natural economy of the information age. Consider the definition of a racketeer as someone who creates a threat and then charges for its reduction. Government's provision of protection yeah. by this standard often qualifies as racketeering. Yeah, it's kind of true because like the most, the, the reason I pay taxes is that I don't want to go to prison. 
Yeah, but then Nothing, yeah, right? but then you also benefit from that because I also benefit, but the real reason is is that yeah, but I think it's a it's not much choice. There's no yeah, but then I think it's I don't know I, I don't think your example is particularly good because it's not like it's not like the state takes money from you and that's it and then and then threatens to to throw you into jail if you don't give yeah, it they away. Also, they also build like roads. Yeah, and that's stuff. but I feel like if there huge. were if there was like a choice, if there was like a private community. Where like a guy says, well, you live and live in this in my castle, but you uh, you pay less taxes. I tr I think I'd rather live there. But then even if he says like live in my castle and pay less taxes, then he throws you out of the castle if you don't pay the taxes. Yeah, absolutely. But um, so what's the difference to the state? Like it's less, you know, it's less. But it's. But I think it's hard to say where where because like most human societies apparently, apart from like a very um, like primitive um, people. Uh, like primitive societies have to kind of form some sort of government to work. Yeah, you need so you need systems. some sort. Of, yeah, but you yeah. can have like anarcho-capitalist groups. Yeah, but it's, it only works for very very small groups of very similar people. It's kind of hard to organize. Yeah, maybe. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And all societies have some come come up with with the government at some point. Pretty soon, actually, you always need somebody to organize stuff. Yeah, but again, like there are like these anarcho-capitalists saying that um, you don't need a government, you don't really need a government for that. But then, I mean, like you still need to some to to abide the, like some rules to abide by, right? Yeah, yeah, there need to be. But who enforces the rules? The, the, like, the question is like, do you do you like do do you do it voluntarily, or is it more like I don't know? I feel like the government it feels kind of like a racket sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, like, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I guess. Yeah, like I, I have no fear that France will invade Austria. Like that's not not. And the, even if that were the case, like Austria wouldn't, the government couldn't protect us. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like they take way too much. And, yeah, like, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Like, the real they, reason they, overpri I pay the taxes. they overcharge. I think they overcharge us. Yeah, actually, yeah. for what they provide, or they they use the money for the wrong things. Maybe. Mm. Look, this one's interesting. The business success of Jews particularly of religious Jews, of the Puritans in New England, the Quakers in British oh, yeah, business, the, story, yeah. the Mormons in modern America, all show the economic benefits that result from cultures with a strong moral framework. Mm. So there's huge value in a strong moral framework. Yeah, but I think that's the, like the, the, the moral basis is kind of in decline in the information age. Yeah, yeah, like especially in the US, like there are like more like riots going on and stuff. I don't think Everywhere, it's... I think the society is disintegrating. Kind of, yes. Because they, there's less shared ideals and shared values. Yeah. So morally speaking, we're a lot worse than we were <laughs> like 500 years ago, probably. So the remaining important uh, trait, they say, will be trust. As I said before, that's what they think. The politically correct culture rejects many, but not all of the moral principles that upheld the old culture. It aggressively emphasizes the role and the rights of groups who are seen as having been historically exploited by a dominant white male culture and rejects that culture despite its being the founding culture of the United States. Yeah. I also thought this, this concept of dynamic morality quite interesting. Do you remember that? So apparently that's a, that's a, like a term by Malthus, you know, the Malthusian, yeah. that guy. And who was that completely wrong? Hmm? The Malthus guy. He was like, society cannot grow. And then it grew exponentially yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. because of... Yeah, yeah, but he says, like, this dynamic morality is apparently about, like, staying in motion, basically, or, like, like constant adaptation. And he says, and this kind of actually reminded me of, like, MJ DeMarco, 
mm-hmm. that like you should try to cultivate this bias for action, like taking action. Mm-hmm. And like there needs to be the dynamics for the, need to, you know, the society can't stop. You need to be like, Moving your, forward, yeah, right? morality needs, you, yeah, needs to, so needs what is to allow argument? you. Like why, why do you need to have a bias for action? Because otherwise, age? because it doesn't, because society stops otherwise. Okay. People need to still be doing stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so, not, yeah. <laughs> but that's a rather basic, yeah. Yeah, but that's what they said, like. Yeah, I think doing stuff is really important. Yeah. And they say, and I think people they say that that's stuff. why, um, that's why I said, like, there's so much, like, people get depressed when they. Don't do enough stuff. Yeah, or when they reach their goals. Ah, so you they, new st- goals. they think back and oh. they're like, oh, it's so cool when I was still building my company. Yeah, makes sense. But here's a really good part, last part about political correctness. The politically correct and the fundamentalist Christian groups are bitterly critical of each other. Yet in the modern world, they look rather alike. They both assume the authority of a particular moral doctrine as though it were universal, even though their moral doctrines are different. Both can be criticized for the same defect, for an exaggerated and overconfident moralism lacking in depth in historical sense or intolerance. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Like political correctness is kind of like very religious in a way. I think it's a, it's like a replacement for religion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have all these secret words. If you words. don't believe in God anymore, then you have to believe in something else. Maybe, yeah. Pharisaism, the conviction that one is uniquely virtuous, is as old as humankind and was particularly offensive to Jesus Christ. Ah, yeah, I also like that. In I think there was some some part um, like about the the agricultural revolution people that the the gods changed from that like the hunter gatherers basically had gods that were kind of that represented the spirits of the animals they had killed Mm -hmm. like nature gods Mm -hmm. and then that like when people started farming the gods completely changed so they had a god for like to make rain to make it rain and the gods were more like also more aggressive so the god of rain was also the god of war in many different cultures so the religions kind of changed yeah it it reflects the to to fit the new purpose yeah okay yeah, it's a nice observation. Yeah. The cognitive elite, which we aspire to be, <laughs> tend to be a bit above themselves, are rather arrogant and think they can set their own standards. They are alienated from society as a result. During the first half of the next century, there will be a massive transfer of wealth from the old west to the new east. Political failures, and China is still a politically backward country, may delay this transfer of wealth and strategic power, but are most unlikely to prevent it. They cannot reverse it. So this is a completely wrong prediction. Like the, that China is a political failure. Well, it's China is. Well, it is. Well, it is still back. It is. No, I don't think it's. I think it's quite accurate. I think it's still politically backward. If you, if yeah. you think that d- democracy is politically forward or would like the state of the art. Yeah, the individuals in China don't seem that sovereign now. Oh no, not at all. Mm. No, but it's still like, yeah, like China will never be like a political role model. But it doesn't really matter. No. Yeah. Because economically, they have overtaken us, and I think actually, actually, like China, as we said before, is the the one example that kind of contradicts what they say about the importance of democracy for military success or military kind of power. Because I think if China actually were to go to war, mm-hmm. they would be, probably beat the US, or like well, I maybe. Know. I think it's pretty even. But, but it, yeah, it they would, would be a lot harder to yeah militarily, even though yeah. they're not a democratic country. That's true. But which just proves that, proves that whoever has got the best economy naturally has yeah. the most resources to 
like shove maybe into like the, the whole economy. Like maybe only the stuff in politics that has to do with your economy is like the really important one, and all the other stuff is like kind well, of especially like, in a like resource intense stuff like war. Yeah, and also you, sometimes you don't need the like democracy or nationalism to to. Because if you can just like force people to go to war, you don't need to like you don't need the whole democracy, nation state, nationalism, blood and earth kind of bullshit. Mm. Like the Chinese don't need that because they just force people to do that. Yeah. A do godless, think- rootless and rich elite is unlikely is unlikely to be happier to be loved. Hmm. But it doesn't like our politics may be led by conventional thinkers, Bill Clinton, Helmut Kohl, John Mayer. <laughs> But our most successful businesses are led by radicals with a keen understanding of the new technological world. The archetype is Bill Gates. Conventional thinking has been discredited in its inability to deal with the rep- rapidity and the sheer force of change. Well, this thing is very true. I feel like the all interesting people, like the rich people, are like very, way more interesting. They're unconventional. Like yeah, the like ones the Elon Musk, yeah, especially the like your, the, the, thing, the people you adore. Yeah, but all these super, well, except no. some rich guys seem kind of generic. Like I feel like Bill Gates nowadays... Like Wouldn't he used be to the be archetype like, of an he's not radical anymore. Yeah, he yeah. seems like a conventional kind of type of thinker. I think there's a group of like a group of these people, but but maybe that these are the archetype of the sovereign individual. Like I thought about a lot. What the sovereign? Who who is the sovereign individual? Mm-hmm. What are the characteristics? Well, well, the characteristics. And I think most of this probably will be will be true for people like Elon Musk or Peter Thiel. Yeah. Also, this kind of shopping for jurisdictions, like that's exactly what Peter Thiel does, right? So he bought citizenship of New, New Zealand. Zealand. Yeah, that's true. But I'm thinking, like, do you think the sovereign individual? <laughs> do you think that's something that, that anybody can be, or do you think that's going to be like a very, very few people? And these few are going to be the winners of the information age, and everybody else is just going to live in chaos, and and everything else is going to fall apart. Hmm. Because I think this is quite... I f- felt like this was the core message, basically. So That it's not going to be that many, yeah. And it's not going to be that many. And it's going to be... like The, the transition the, to the information age is quite... Uh, it's not going to go so smoothly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ask, I think there are a lot of conflicts like on the horizon. Yeah. But so I, I, felt, feel like, I feel like there are going to be sovereign individuals. And everybody should try to become one, obviously. And then these might kind of like make their own kind of na- nation states. And like segregate from the okay, others. Okay, and then maybe there's like the semi-sovereign individuals, which are going to move from the old falling apart nation states to the the country of Peter Thiel. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't think anybody, like definitely not everybody can have their own country. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. Even though there are some people like, do you remember this part about the Zona Franca? The, like there's this, apparently there are some free trade zones. Yeah, that can be bought. Yeah, yeah but I still think that didn't really, like... It didn't pan out that well because I've never heard of them. And I Googled one of them, the one in Western Africa, and it's still like... Yeah, but there are these dead. like these city, model cities. Like there's like a big... like they are, This is something that is, that is happening. But what they don't mention at all is like AI. Well, they kind of say that information retrieval systems. But I feel like what they didn't predict in this book is like the whole rise of really, really artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's true. Yeah, that's... But they did predict like this kind of mass, like this media thing, like social, I mean, not really social media, but the importance of the media and even like how it's going to be hard to distinguish between fake and real news kind of. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So that's, that's the book. There's also the afterword. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. There are two things I highlighted. 
Um, the first is like the Chinese proverb at the top of the book. Of all 36 ways to get out of trouble, the best way is leave. Mm. So it's ridiculous that there's like, like exactly 36 ways to get out of trouble. But I feel like this whole, there's this framework, I don't know what it's called, where you can voice your problem. Yeah, you can voice it or there's three things. Yeah, I think endure it kind of, you know, and then leave, just leave. Yeah. And the Chinese proverb says just leaving is the best. And I think that's like an undervalued, yeah, you can just leave. If you don't like it in Austria, leave. If you are, yeah. And then it's whatever your current residence or nationality, to optimize your wealth, you should aim to primarily reside in a country other than that from which you hold your first passport while keeping the bulk of your money in yet a third jurisdiction, preferably a tax haven. And I like it that you just straight out say that. Yeah. Because like... But do you ever, do you think that in our lifetime will ever, like citizenship will be over? This concept will vanish completely? No, no, you need to be like, you need to be part of some organized group with concentrated interests. But you can make one with other people. But then like if you do a network state, they're going to issue some kind of citizenship or passport of sovereign people because you need that but don't you think that even the network state if it gets big enough will kind of fall into the same pitfalls as the nation state and the good thing about the network state is that it's you can you can leave it you know it's easier to leave and is it easy to keep the people out as well yeah that's the question because i think sometimes it's not so much about like it's about keeping the people out and not because some not like i guess if you had like two-thirds of Austria leave, then it will also be maybe a nice state to run. If you keep all the tax, if you just make all the tax consumers leave, yeah. then... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like the you, in order to become like a state, like a network state, like it's, it's, at some point it becomes important that other states recognize you. So that's going to be an issue. But again, the network state is, an, is a different topic. Like from the perspective of this book, you should just change, change the, your state, just move to the to the best one. But I think it's not so easy. But it's what's becoming the, easier. Yeah, no, right? no. But no, it's determining what's the best state is not that easy. Yeah, but that's like, you don't need to have the very best perfect state. But they're just saying, like, usually the one you were born with, that's like, you know, it's like if you draw draw one card out of a stack of cards, you probably have like a mediocre one. And, uh, but I think, like, if you're born in Europe, you have you don't have a mediocre one. Now, nah, well, tax-wise, you got a you got a mediocre one, I think. Like the culture and stuff is pretty good, like the basic culture. But also, I think that's like that's the undervalue, like the they undervalue what other than taxes, what the country has to offer. I don't want to be in well, Somalia they, in the middle of nowhere. They focus very where, much on the taxes. Yeah. yeah. But there are things like culture. Yeah, especially the weather, culture. The I mean, the weather the is also like it's it's nice and sunny in like most parts of the world. That's yeah. not the problem. But Stability. if I live in Somalia, like I, I enjoy going to the theater. Can't do that there, like because you can watch it online. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think there are some things that can't be recreated, like like culture, like the local culture. Yeah, is something that like immaterial goods. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I agree with you, actually, yeah. Yeah, you need some kind of special communities. You need, like, special people yeah, that you yeah. actually like. So I think maybe this book goes really well with the Network State book. Maybe we should read that Yeah, maybe, next. yeah, maybe they are... They are very much... Unconsciously pointing to, like, the Network State. Not yeah, so yeah, much as yeah. a... Also, the Network State itself references this book. Really, yeah. Quite a lot, oh, that's yeah. Why, you, why you picked it out? Kind of, I don't know. But, yeah, it was definitely a very interesting... Um, 
it makes you think very differently or it makes you kind of meditate the what what the nation state actually does or like the state yeah i think for me at least like i never really thought what the state did for me or whether so i see myself more of a customer now and i feel like am i satisfied with what the state yeah that's that's a big thing that this book does Does for you right yeah make you think more like yeah because yeah because you get accustomed to the status quo you're like oh i was born in this state i gotta like you never really quest like not properly question what actually what does the state benefit me yeah do we even get a good deal out of this yeah yeah it's a good deal and that's a big value that this book provides yeah totally definitely it maybe changed the way i think about like the state absolutely and some of the predictions they are pretty impressive Or like in general, it was a, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to spoil you about whether I think it's red or wack right now, because it's the last point, but um, that's something we can take away for our personal lives, just like thinking about if the state we live in is worth it, right? Totally, yeah. And also like the whole thing about being, uh, like we need we m- need to make sure not to miss the sovereign individual train. Yeah. Right? Maybe that's the goal for 2023. To become a sovereign individual. A tiny bit more sovereign. Absolutely. Learn some more skills and do some more stuff. Create some assets that can't be grabbed by the state. Yeah, yeah. All right. So should we move on to the section where we compare it to other books? Yes. Let's go. Scout mindset. So I think we're more like scouts. Like I think this book makes you, yeah, it makes you like become a scout when it comes to thinking about government. Yeah. About the, what the government provides for your yeah. life. Yeah. What's the use of the government? All right. It's a nice one. It's also <laughs> the basic one. I don't remember much more about Scott Mindset. What about wanting mimesis? Well, I guess, I mean, for the nation state, like for society to work, mimesis always plays a big part. Yeah. Also, I feel like like maybe nationalism is kind of mimetic. Oh, definitely. Us. Completely. Like Hanania says in his book that nationalism is a kind of weak force when compared to like how important your family is and stuff and your own life. Mm, but I don't think it's that weak, actually. But I think sometimes it can be like... And it can it can kind of provoke huge emotions. Like just thinking about the, you know, the, the, the football where championships had just ended. Yeah. It reminded me how many... How, people were, yeah. That how the more... nation stayed, like how But it's very nomadic because you see other people. Yeah, yeah. For them it's important and then kind of becomes more important for you. Yeah. But right now we live in a time where like... The, mim- the mimesis for the state is kind of going down. I feel like people identify less with their state now. People are, I think people are less willing to go to war because also they see other people less willing to but go to al- war. But on the other hand, there's like the surge in nationalism because even tr- Donald yeah. Trump, look at, look at Donald like Trump and he's just like a... But I mean, that's what they say. They say in the first couple of um, decades of the 21st century, they expect nationalism to be on the rise, actually. Mm-hmm. And I feel, in a way, Driven that's... Driven by I, the loser group, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the people who harness the loser group. Mm. And that's like Donald Trump. Um, okay. Zero, All right, next one. Zero, zero to, to one. one. Well, Peter Thiel wrote the preface. And, like, as he wrote in the preface, like, zero to one, there was, like, one part where it's about the most contrarian thing you can do is think for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I feel like these guys really thought for themselves. Like, it's a pretty... Um, yeah, they are... I think they explained at some point how they make this these predictions because mm-hmm. nobody else i think yeah. especially the fall of communists was not that easy of a thing to predict but they just look at <coughs> they try to go from first principle mm-hmm. and think for themselves and think how things work 
Yeah, and like thinking about incentives and stuff. Yeah, and the whole violence thing. Like I never thought that, I never looked at violence that way. Mm -hmm. That is such an important, like such a decisive factor. Yeah. Anti-fragile. All right, anti-fragile. Well, I think um, like the, the nation state is definitely not anti-fragile. And I think also in anti-fragile, Taleb says that the city states, the like... From like, um, yeah, like Venice he's like a localism kind of guy. And stuff like like Venice and Florence, they were more anti-fragile than mm -hmm. bigger states. They can adapt better. Kind yeah, of. and so maybe we're back, we're on our way back to like these city-states. Mm. All right, Zarathustra. <laughs> That's always a hard one. Well, but I feel like Nietzsche always says how, how like all people are like stupid and like everybody's dumb and retarded and... He's, I think Nietzsche is very much pro-self-sovereign individual. Sovereign individual. So just sovereign individual. I think like Nietzsche would like this idea because it's like cool and edgy and... I mean, I guess actually that Zarathustra guy is wow. a sovereign individual. He's a, yeah, he's living in his own cave, like being... Yeah, and he always leaves. And then the bird always brings him food. Like and he always leaves. He leaves. He sometimes ah, yeah. leaves. He's, he migrates all he the migrates time. He migrates a lot. He migrates... <laughs> Wow, maybe that's the prototypical sovereign individual. Sovereign individual. Nice. All right, atomic habits. Maybe there are habits you can adopt to become a sovereign individual. Like the habit of changing your passport. <laughs> 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 yeah, but I think, I think this one is more of a meta book than atomic habits. So it's like, like an, on another level, really. Yeah, yeah. Like the mega political stuff doesn't really have lots to do with atomic habits. Yeah, but like the question is like to become a self-sovereign individual. I, I'm sure, I bet you've got to have great atomic habits. You need to have like very, <laughs> this is very atomic, whereas the other is very mega. Yeah. But the mega stuff also is made mega out of atoms. atoms. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Machiavellians, now that relates a lot because like, yeah, Machiavellians yeah. very much about this concentrated interest groups and how they influence stuff. And um, about the political ideas that hold countries together. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I also thought I, I thought the about the Machiavellians formula, no? a couple of times. Yeah. So how does it relate? <coughs> well, I think the whole like all the political ideas in the Machiavellians can be found in like <laughs> nation states, right? So, well, I think the, like the Machiavellians and all the they they kind of look closely at the anatomy of nation states, right? Mm -hmm. All right. Let's move on. Open borders. Our last podcast. Well, I guess, I mean, as you said. Uh, Open borders very much stresses the importance of migration and that, that being valuable for yeah. all involved. Like, and not from an altruistic perspective. Necessarily, it's, barely, yeah. it's really better for everyone. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And this book is like from another perspective. Like this book basically says you should migrate. And Open and Borders says you should others let migrate. Yeah. Whereas this book says... You yourself should migrate. <laughs> this is your core takeaway, right? <laughs> we need to migrate. Let's migrate. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, that's it. So what do we take away? We, I think we discussed this, right? Okay, become sovereign individual. What will we do differently? Think about where you live more. Think about We're what your government home. can provide for you. Or yeah, like yeah. Think if that's a fair deal. That's a good deal. Mm. Otherwise, leave. And then the big question in the end, was it a, was the book rad or was it whack? Um, well, I think it's very, it's actually, it's an extremely good book. It's very, it's, it was very good, right? Yeah. It's very interesting. Also, like all the historical, like little stories here and there, the history. And it's pretty, for me, it was really radical and kind of 
unveiling the the like the government mm-hmm. revealing very revealing yeah that's that it's a bit of a racket yeah right so, so it's super rad right so very yeah. radical it is very radical yes so you should all read it it's, yeah it's read it. Worth it. that's pretty good all right and happy to new year happy, to everybody happy new year 